Today I am speaking with Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey is an evolutionary psychologist, best known for his books The Mating Mind, Mating Intelligence, Spent, and Mate. He got his BA in biology and psychology from Columbia and his PhD in psychology from Stanford. He is a tenured professor at the University of New Mexico, and he has over 100 academic publications addressing sexual selection, mate choice, signaling theory, fitness indicators, consumer behavior, marketing, intelligence, creativity, language, art, music, humor, emotions, personality, psychopathology, and behavioral genetics. Anyway, Jeffrey is a very interesting guy, and we recorded this event in Houston in March. And we covered a wide range of topics, things like sexual selection and virtue signaling and public shaming, social media, spent a fair amount of time on monogamy versus polyamory. Uh, we touched other taboo topics in science, spoke briefly about genetic engineering and existential risk, in particular AI, spoke about gender differences, the Google memo, many things here. So I hope you enjoy it. I now bring you Jeffrey Miller. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I must say, I'm, I'm a little thrown by this room. I'm, I hope you're not expecting electric guitars and death metal music. But thank you for coming out. I've never been to Houston before, and it's, it's an honor to be here. So uh, I will jump right into this. We have a very interesting guest tonight. My guest is an evolutionary psychologist and a professor at the University of New Mexico. He's the author of many books and many scientific papers. And he is focused on topics as diverse as sexual selection, mate choice, consumer behavior, intelligence, creativity, language, psychopathology, many other topics. Uh, his research has been featured in Nature and Science and the New York Times and in many documentaries. Please welcome Jeffrey Miller. Out here. Thank you for coming, Jeffrey. Hey, Texas. So, so uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I guess, well, I mean, let's start with your, your field, which is evolutionary psychology. Why is this so fraught? I mean, the, the, the thesis, which is now just undeniable, that we are evolved creatures, and therefore not only our bodies have evolved, but our minds have evolved, our brains have certainly evolved. Yeah. Why is this still so difficult to talk about? Honestly, it's pretty surprising, because I've been working in this field for about 30 years, and when we first started the field, um, it was fairly heretical to apply evolutionary theory, natural selection, sexual selection, ideas of social competition and behavioral ecology, to apply all of that biology that had worked so well for thousands of other species, to apply it to humans. It was new, but we had no idea that it would get such a political backlash. And I think in the popular imagination, 
evolutionary psychology is still kind of associated stereotypically with, oh, you guys study nothing but sex differences. Or, oh, you guys do intelligence research, which very few of us actually do. And I think it's, a, it's part of a general uh, defense of a kind of blank slate um, ideology that says, look, if you bring animal behavior, if you bring genetics, if you bring evolutionary theory into the human sphere, um, particularly where they affect you know, political controversies, then that's, a, that's anathema, that's kind of a taboo. It muddies the waters, um, it, it makes people uncomfortable. But for reasons I'm, I'm honestly baffled by, I've never really felt uncomfortable viewing humans as animals. Mm. I've never really felt uncomfortable with the idea that all of the hard work our ancestors did for millions of years have endowed us with amazing capacities, like emotions, motivations, preferences, that, that generally help us do awesome things and get along and, and invent things and, and make progress and show altruism. Um, I've never really felt the kind of panic, the moral panic that a lot of people seem to feel about this. Is it an attachment to a kind of mind-body dualism? Because obviously no one's disputing that the body has evolved and that we are apes in that respect, but is it a, a concern specifically that, that what we care about in the mind and, and differences between minds, that, that that could be beholden to evolution? I, I think so, but I think honestly that, you know, the common folk aren't really approaching this metaphysically. I don't think it's really about uh, mind-body dualism or free will or any of that stuff you get in philosophy 101. I think it's often more to do with the fact that um, people worry that you're, you're reducing the rich smorgasbord of human capabilities down to a very small number of, of basic um, instincts. Which is, in fact, the exact opposite of what I try to do. A lot of my work has tried to uh, illustrate, for example, that human capacities to produce art or learn and create rep uh, music or to have a good sense of humor are genuine adaptations that evolve for specific social and sexual functions and that those are endowments that we have. Um, so that's not really reducing the human mind to, to simpler things. It's saying our ancestors cared so much in selecting mates and friends who were interesting and witty and funny that we now are all amazingly witty and funny and interesting compared to any other primate. Mm. Yeah, we, we are funnier than at least some yeah. of the orangutans. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I think all actors know that you don't want to share a stage with one. You will be upstaged. Well, so, so you just introduced, you, you surreptitiously introduced a concept which I think many people are not familiar with. Everyone more or less knows about natural selection, but there's this other variable, sexual selection. What, what is that? Sexual selection, um, I think, was Darwin's most brilliant idea. Natural selection, you know, Wallace also invented it. Other folks would have invented it. I think if we hadn't had Darwin, we might not have had sexual selection for another 50 years in the history of biology. Brilliant idea. Darwin realized if animals choose their mates selectively for certain traits, those traits will tend to get amplified and become more complex and, and conspicuous and colorful and intricate and 
and impressive, they'll work better and better as signals of the animal's underlying good genes, good health, good coordination ability. And that opens uh, a real Pandora's box of, of amazing adaptations like bird song, uh, whale song, you know, human song, human language, that you might not have been able to get if you only had natural selection for survival. Uh, but Darwin's theory was kind of neglected for about a century. Nobody really applied sexual selection theory very seriously to human behavior until the 70s and 80s. And I got absolutely fascinated by it in grad school um, at Stanford in the late 80s when I thought, you know, being a young single man, why is it that women and men have the mate preferences they do? Why do they seem to care about these things? Mm. Like uh, verbal fluency or humor or musical aptitude that don't have survival payoffs in any simple way. Uh, and that's what I ended up writing my dissertation about, to argue that the same things that are romantically attractive now in humans may have been romantically attractive in prehistory and may have shaped our minds to be able to do specifically those things. So I think um, the human mind is not just a survival machine, it's also a, a courtship machine. So how would you distinguish between something that has been selected for based on mate preference and something that is what Stephen Jay Gould called a spandrel, something that's just there by virtue of other underlying things but was never selected for and never got anyone to further their, their genetic legacy? Well, you, you look for certain patterns, like if there are abilities where kids don't very much care about them until puberty and then they get really excited about them, right? Mm -hmm. Just in time for mating, that, that's a hint. If there are skills and aptitudes that people suddenly develop an interest in when they fall in love and they really want to display those, that's a hint that it might have been sexually selected. If people brag about a certain thing on their OkCupid dating profile, right, that, that's sort of a hint. And crucially, maybe heartbreakingly, things that people did a lot before marriage and then get kind of lazy about hmm. afterwards, where it's like, well, you used to do all these things. I think we're going to need a list of these things just to be better people. <laughs> um, you know, that's, the, that, that's what you expect from uh, the profile and mating effort. And I think with a lot of these kind of aesthetic and entertaining behaviors, that's, that's kind of the pattern that you tend to see with humans. Mm. So, now, so let's take some of these categories. How does this relate to consumer behavior? So consumer behavior is a little bit more of a stretch. So it, what I did in my book, Spent, which was about 10 years ago, was I tried to analyze um, why do we buy the goods and services that we do really in a modern market economy with complex marketing and branding and advertising and, and lifestyle branding, where you try to create a link between this product and this brand and this aspirational lifestyle in the consumer's mind. How does that work? Um, I think it's all signaling theory, right? It's all about how do you signal what kind of entity you are to others. Just like sexual ornaments can be described through signaling theory. You know, what kind of peacock are you as displayed through your peacock's tail? But in the case of consumer behavior, we're not literally growing these ornaments. We're making the money and running around buying them. So whatever you're wearing out there in the audience, 
um, you probably made a conscious choice about this is my look for tonight. This is the kind of person I want to come across as. Um, and you might that, be rethinking those choices now. Right, and, and now, so so look look to your we're, left and look gonna, to your we'll right. We're going to see and, you when the Q and A starts. Judge so each other. There's no hiding. And we're all very good at picking up these sort of subtle cues about oh, and, and, mm, interesting jacket choice, right? <laughs> and those shoes on a first date, really. Uh, so we are very tuned into the signaling, and we don't typically talk about it in these terms. But um, I think there's a there's a continuity between sexual selection for sexual ornamentation in nature, and consumer choice for goods and services in the modern market economy. The, the underlying signaling principles, I think, are, are quite similar. Mm. Now, there's this phrase that has seemed to have spread like a mental virus on social media. You could probably guess the phrase I'm going for now, which I would imagine everyone has heard now, but virtually no one had heard even 12 months ago, and that phrase is virtue signaling. Everyone who castigates me for having virtue signaled about something, seems to have a green frog in their Twitter bio. But so what is, what is the, uh, undoubtedly this is being overused, but what is virtue signaling and, and is it an embarrassing social trait or a necessary one? I think virtue signaling gets a lot of flack, but it's, it's really important and I think it's largely positive. We all do it all the time. It's not monopolized by any particular part of the political spectrum. Um, I, I wrote a paper called Sexual Selection for Moral Virtues about 10 years ago where I tried to analyze what are the virtues that we tend to show off to potential lovers during courtship. Right? They tend to be things like kindness and agreeableness and fidelity and, and commitment and, and uh, you know, romantic love. And these are all signals that say, I'm a kind of person who might make a good long-term partner and future parent. So when you're doing virtue signaling and courtship, like, it's all good unless you're doing it deceptively. And we're actually pretty good at picking out who is being deceptive because we, uh, the technical term is shit testing, we, we test them, like we give them little challenges, right, and we see how they respond. Now, in the political sphere... Do you have any recommended challenges? That, um, some people might be on a first date here, and you could just well, cause chaos. You, you really want to create a situation where someone's true moral character comes out when they're under severe stress, and they're tired, and pro preferably a little tipsy, and, and it, it, so make it, make it a kind of moral obstacle course. <laughs> but in the, in the political sphere, virtue signaling can be really toxic if a bunch of people get together and they say, this is an issue where I'm going to demonstrate what a good and kind and concerned person I am about issue X by advocating a new policy or intervention or law. Mm -hmm that doesn't actually address the problem in any pragmatic way, but is sort of symbolically associated with, with expressing concern. And I think that's where you get real problems. Um, I tend to be... 
I have a lot of respect for human instincts when it comes to managing our affairs in small groups. I don't have a lot of respect for our instincts in terms of scaling up mm. to manage large-scale social policy decisions in, in nation-states. Yeah, yeah. So, the, yeah. so in that respect, what are your thoughts or misgivings about what we're doing on social media? What you just said put me in mind of the kind of mob-like moral panic behavior we see spread, and, that, and, and it's, it's a very low-cost virtue signal to forward something on Twitter or to add your voice to this cacophony that is singling somebody out for abuse. Yeah, I think when you get the, the intersection of virtue signaling and a sort of online witch hunt and mob mentality and, um, you know, let's have an auto-defe that, that destroys someone's career because I'm going to misinterpret this one thing they said, take it out of context, mm. and then feed it to people who will reliably express outrage about it. Um, that's a terrible kind of society to live in. And I think pretty much every public figure now lives in almost constant fear of that happening. And folks who engage regularly with social media, like Sam or like Jordan Peterson or like Christina Hoff Summers or anybody from anywhere across the spectrum, is self-censoring quite a bit because we know you know, everything we say is, is going to be taken out of context by someone and they're going to try to weaponize it into embarrassment or perhaps, you know, a, a career-killing event. Mm -hmm. So I hope that as a society we can develop a better kind of uh, conceptual immune system that rejects that sort of, of dynamic and that's very skeptical of that particular kind of virtue signaling. Mm. Is there something that the platforms themselves could change or that we could change as, as far as our behavior goes? Or is it, is it conceivable that there, there's another sign to this that it will, it will take it to yeah. such an absurd extreme that everyone will have a thicker skin and a, a, a more durable reputation as a result? Well, when I talk to my students, about this, I, I point out, look, in five or ten years, everybody will have augmented reality glasses or contact lenses. We will all be recording audio and video all the time for pretty much every interaction we have with everyone. That means any cocktail conversation, any um, little interchange as you're walking down the hallway with someone, ev everything that you, that you do is going to be vulnerable to going up on YouTube. Is that just, by definition, dystopian, or are you, are you, do you see a silver lining to that? It's gonna be hell for about three years. Mm. It's gonna be hell. There, there's going to be mass embarrassment and, and horror, and, and there'll be a very steep learning curve until we all realize we all, dozens of times a day, say things that, if taken out of context, are really, really embarrassing. And I think we just have to level up and realize that and get over it. Hmm. And judge people by, you know, the whole mass of what they do and say and not just by these isolated incidents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that, having been on the receiving end of a lot of this, it, it seems to me that the, the most insidious thing is to seize upon something that can be misconstrued 
out of context for the purpose of misconstruing it out of context and then hold someone accountable for that thing. And rather than actually care what they care about the totality of what they think on, on any given issue. And those efforts are, are always in bad faith. And I just feel like there's the, the penalty for doing that should increase. I, I, I think that's something that we haven't quite we haven't found whatever dial can be turned there, but because people do that with impunity and seem to always get away with it, and there's really no recourse but to just keep saying that's, that's not what it meant in context. Yeah, I think we all have to hold each other accountable for that, and I think we have to do it kind of in private. I think that's the leverage. I mean, you know, I'll sometimes impulsively want to, you know, tweet something and my girlfriend, who's also pretty active on Twitter, will go, eh, eh, I don't know about that. Or it'll go out and it'll start to get some bad traction and then she'll go. Well, you, if you, you follow should. Jeffrey on Twitter, you'll know just how diabolical some of those, those edited tweets must be because he's, <laughs> he's very edgy on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. What, what you're getting is yeah. the this, this stuff that made it past my girlfriend's. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That says a lot about what it would look like if the dam burst. But yeah, I think uh, calling each other to account. So for example, I'd, I had one incident a few months ago where um, I retweeted something where some uh, graduate student at a particular university had, had used something called the progressive stack in her classroom, which is a way of making sure you call on certain people by ethnic groups before you call on other ethnic groups. And that went viral much more than I expected it to. I didn't really want her to get in as much trouble as she did with her university, but conservative media picked up on it. And I ended up kind of writing an email to her dean saying, please don't take this too seriously. I'm like, I was one of the instigators of this. You, go easy, this is, this is ridiculous. This is yet another witch hunt don't cave to the social pressure. And I think if you ever find yourself in a situation where you've unwittingly fed mm. one of these online mobs, you, you have a moral duty to try to correct it to the extent that you can. Yeah, that's interesting because it, there's, there seems to be a, an ethic, certainly, that public shaming has an appropriate role to play here. And so it's te very tempting when you see something that is clearly wrong or, or something that's, that has been put out there for which the author should be embarrassed. You feel that someone's getting away with murder somehow. And you circulate that for the purpose of shining some sunlight on this and, and, and shaming this person. At least, I mean, I, you know, I've, I have done that from time to time, feeling like, okay, well, this is totally warranted, but I'm never foreseeing some catastrophic reputational cost there. I'm not saying that, you know, this person should be fired or, and as you say, things can get out of hand. Is that initial ethical intuition, you think, in error? I mean, should we, should, should we not be leveraging shame at all in public discourse or on social media? I think shame is, is a, a, a dangerous tool, but like, what are the alternatives? So, you know, I'm a libertarian, so I generally don't want the state to outlaw things that I don't disapprove of. I think it's better to have um, social norms enforced by shame than laws enforced by state um, threat of violence. Right. So, 
Can you do better than shame? I think you can use shame carefully or you can use it recklessly. Um, and I think to use it carefully, you have to understand uh, what is the nature of shaming? How do online mobs work? How does, how does human moral psychology work in general? There's some good books out there now. We have a much better understanding of, of these so-called social emotions like shame and gratitude and, and anger than we used to 10 years ago. And I think at this point, every citizen kind of owes it you know, to society to, to understand our instincts uh, about these issues and to have a certain amount of distance from our initial reactions and to go, oh, I, I, have, I have the urge to express my moral outrage. Is that really constructive? If it gets out of hand, will I regret it? Um, and is my moral outrage informed? Or is it just kind of uh, a culturally programmed reaction to an issue that I don't really know anything about? Well, you, you have uh, many thoughts on human sexuality and kind of our, our evolved moral intuitions around monogamy and uh, its alternatives. Polyamory is something you've uh, written about and actually adopted. This seems like a very complicated way to live for those of us who are, who are not part of it. So t t let's talk about just innovation in that sphere. Well, first, we should define polyamory, uh, but um, why is this just not way more trouble than it's worth? Well, <laughs> it's totally worth it. Um, <laughs> so I, I, was, I was a good little monogamist, and I believed in, in monogamist mating norms until a few years ago when my... my girlfriend turned to me. Um, humans have an innate tendency to form long-term pair bonds, no doubt. Pair bonds are extremely important in human evolution. People finding mates, settling down, having a little home, raising kids together, by parental care, dads investing, that has been crucial to human evolution for at least a million years. Um, and then it's kind of gotten ritualized culturally into the expectation of lifelong monogamous marriage. And every large successful civilization in human history has adopted uh, monogamous marriage as the typical mating pattern for most people most of the time. So I'm not going to go dis monogamy. It has been a wildly successful way to take sort of hominid pair bonds and update them for you know, agricultural and industrial civilizations in ways that work for most people, you know, most of the time, pretty well. However, they can be oppressive to certain people who have certain values or certain life situations or simply certain personalities. So I taught, I think, the first psychology of polyamory course last term at University of New Mexico, and we reviewed all the what, empirical... What was enrollment like in that course? It was, it was it what really, was the ratio it was of, really of cool men to students. women? It was 50-50, and um, it, it, all, it all worked very well. There are no fisticuffs or big arguments. Um, other professors gave me some flack. Another story. Um, 
But I think in, in the modern era, if you, if you go back and you ask, what were the original cultural and social functions of monogamous marriage? A lot of them had to do with things like reduce the transmission rate of STDs, um, ensure paternity certainty that your kid is who you think your kid is, um, manage inheritance of wealth and land, um, and it was also crucially about spreading reproductive opportunities fairly evenly across young males and young females so that nobody kind of monopolizes the mating market. And that all worked very, very well. You couldn't have had um, you know, Chinese or Roman or medieval European civilization work as well as it did without monogamy. But in the modern world, 21st century relationships, the issue is, are your kids or grandkids seriously going to pursue lifelong monogamous marriage as their you know, default or their aspiration? The surveys among millennials and Gen Z say no. A lot of them don't want that. So what are they going to do? We don't know. This is probably the topic of my next book. Um, but I think we have to basically look at all the different little sexual subcultures that have tried different kinds of mating patterns, right? Monogamy people, uh, polygamists, polyamorists, um, swingers, um, asexuals. Figure out what are the lessons learned from each of those subcultures and can, can try you, to Can you differentiate those? Because between yeah. monogamy and asexuals, it all sounded like a big orgy. Right. It's... <laughs> It's, it, it all sounds like a big, messy, messy orgy from the outside, but from the inside, they're like, the poly people think the swingers are like super conservative and like red state, and the swingers think the polyamorous people are really young and naive. And but so, so, but what, what is the difference? So yeah. how does one know whether one is a swinger or polyamorous? <clears throat> if you're probably a swinger, if you're... Uh, a married couple, and you like to go to events where you meet other married couples, and you kind of court them couple to couple, and if you get along, then you, um, you get together and you um, kind of swap partners temporarily for a few hours, or, or you hang out together for a weekend. Mm -hmm. With a sexual swap, but typically not a long-term emotional connection expected to be formed, although they happen sometimes. So swinging is sort of a couple meets couple thing. Polyamory is more of a, there might be this individual or they might be with another individual in an open relationship, and each of them will typically be dating other people with the full knowledge and consent of everyone involved. That's the crucial thing, hmm. is the honesty and the transparency. Um, so that's kind of the poly ideal. And the, there are other emerging ways to do this, um, I think of it as a kind of Cambrian explosion of different relationship patterns, most of which will end up being dumb and fail. Mm. But the ones that don't fail, I think, will be great learning experiences for kind of updating uh, monogamy and, and figuring out how to do it or something else better. So I guess it's, it's not hard to envision the, the bumps in the road down that down that path. So how do you deal with jealousy? How do you deal with kind of an asymmetry between, you know, just how much one partner in the relationship is, is hooking up with other people? Yeah. And, and what would you, can you 
is there a sociology uh, around this that's understood? I mean, what is the success rate or failure rate of these yeah. relationships? The success and failure rate seems kind of comparable, at least in terms of how happy people are in these relationships. Short term, we don't yet have good data on how stable are they long term. Like, uh, if, if there's a couple who's about to have twins, I would not necessarily say, you guys should definitely try polyamory right now. No. Okay? Because I don't, I don't know how the longevity would work out. But in terms of the jealousy issue, um, here's where I part company with the kind of standard polyamory culture. A lot of polyamorists say jealousy is a kind of cultural construct. It's arbitrary. You can jettison it. You can unlearn it. It's, it doesn't run very deep. I think, on the contrary, evolution created sexual and emotional jealousy for very, very good reasons. They are deep instincts. They have important adaptive functions. However, that doesn't mean you have to let them rule your life. So, you know, the Steve Pinker book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, is all about we have these aggressive homicidal instincts, right? But we managed to drop the rate of aggressive homicide by orders of magnitude over the last thousands of years. That was a win for civilization, taking aggressive instincts and harnessing them and managing them and making them not run our lives. I think the same thing could be done with sexual jealousy. But most people aren't willing to try. They're terrified of jealousy and they can't imagine being in a relationship where they're comfortable with a partner going out on a date for a night. That terrifies them more than like bankruptcy or, mm -hmm. or real or a bad election, you know. It, but it's survivable. It's survivable. And but, but then the question is why? And then one wonders whether that murder curve is going to go up if this ever <laughs> catches on. Yeah. Uh, what's the... There must be some perceived limitation of, of well-being imposed by monogamy that is corrected for by polyamory, and, and it's, it's worth the, the, yeah. the jealousy that you, you say is unavoidable. Yeah, okay, so what are the upsides? Um, it's fun, you get to meet more people. Um, I think humans are actually evolved to use sex to make friends. Um, and I'm not being totally facetious about that. It, sex is a great way to get to know somebody better very quickly. Um, and the poly that, that's, a, that's a tweetable meme, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and so the poly culture tends to be very tightly socially networked. And that can bring a lot of benefits, socially, emotionally, professionally, um, in terms of careers, in terms of like cost savings, all sorts of ways. You, f you, you sort of are recreating a tribe in a way that a lot of modern alienated people in society don't have a, a tribe. So is, that, is, is it functioning that way, that there, there is a kind of community that is... Yes. It, it, so it's not that polyamorous people are continually having, you're in an open relationship with people who are, I don't know what the name is, civilians who, who don't know what they're getting into, right? <laughs> this is a, a kind of hermetically sealed, or I would imagine people are being inducted into this. And I mean, it's, it's, right. it's sounding a little cult-like. Is there any kind of like proselytizing of this that is uh, necessary to get this working out in the world? 
Well, like all great ideas, you have to proselytize it. Yeah. Um, no, the, the, the crucial thing, though, is that everybody involved should be kind of, should give fully informed consent for what's happening, and you should be upfront. Like, if you go on a date, and you're polyamorous, and you're in, an, in a relationship, you gotta say, I'm in an open relationship, right. I'm polyamorous. That's, the, you can't, like, hide that. And but then, but would, you, would you reveal that even before you go on the date, so that, that, so that there'd be no surprise in that first conversation? Well, on certain dating sites like OkCupid, you can actually specify right, okay. this, this is my dating orientation, non-monogamous, whatever. Right. Um, I think, more seriously, a lot of people who are in long-term relationships get stale. Their self-image is, I don't know whether I'm an interesting person anymore. I don't know how attractive I am anymore. I don't know who I am. I don't know what my interests are you kind of get locked into this um, duet with, with a partner and you're just sort of out there isolated on your own without any genuine romantic or emotional engagement with anybody else. And I think for a lot of married couples that can be extremely alienating after a while and actually increase your divorce rate. Because a lot of people feel like either I'm stuck in this, bored to tears, or we break up the relationship. There is a third alternative. You can learn more about consensual non-monogamy, openness, transparency, maybe open the relationship and try it. And it might not work, but the more you read about it, the more likely it is to work. And a lot of people might end up in a situation, I think, that, that Dan Savage calls monogamish, <laughs> where you're kind of 90, 95% monogamous, but maybe, you know, the wife goes out on a date once a month with somebody else. And you can handle it because maybe you have a date the same time. And then you get the equity, mm. right? There's not a mismatch. So I'm not, like, advocating this for everybody. But I am saying these are trends that are happening socially in America. And they are rapidly increasing. And a lot of people under 30 take these seriously as a, as a possible way of life, and we should pay attention to it, do more research on it, think, think hard about it. Okay, so I just want to say the fine print here is that if that part of the conversation winds up deranging any of your lives, send all your email to Jeffrey and not to me. My polyamory syllabus is posted online. You can just read all the, read all the papers yeah. there. Get busy with that. I'm hoping my wife doesn't hear this part of the podcast. So there are so many taboo topics that we've touched on some it just at a run, things like intelligence and gender difference. And I mean, are there any now that you feel like we, we just have to learn to speak about more honestly from a biological or psychological point of view? Or are these third rails better left untouched? I think at some point in the next 10 or 20 years, America's going to have to start to make its peace with the fact that a lot of mental traits are heritable. Not necessarily for political reasons, but just because of the practicalities of, um, of the genetic technology that are going to make it possible to do pre-implantation embryo selection and genetic screening. 
where probably within 10 or 20 years, you know, a couple who are having a baby are going to have the option of deciding, do we want to try to do the selection among all the possible uh, fertilized eggs, selecting for this trait or that trait or this other trait? Mm. A lot of people will say, don't care, let the chips fall where they may, let it be random. But some folks will say, well, look, if I can get a kid who's a little bit smarter than they would otherwise be, they'll do better in school and college and their career and, and their relationship and, and everything else, why not? Or they might go, maybe some moral virtues are heritable, as they are. All personality traits are heritable, including things like agreeableness and conscientiousness. So if you could select for those in your kids, will you? Hmm. Well, at a we, certain point, if, if we had the technology hmm. and there were no safety hmm. risks, I mean, if we, if we had vetted it fully, it would seem like a, a truly unconscionable moral lapse not to give your kid hmm. those advantages if you hmm. could. So, I mean, it's like hmm. you know, not putting a seatbelt on your kid. I mean, there's no downside to wearing the seatbelt, and yeah. you're increasing their chance of survival. If, if you can amplify unambiguously good traits without raising the risk of negative consequences. I mean, it, it's, it should be said it's not guaranteed that the genome will work out that way. It could be that if, if you increase the genes that increase the probability of, of intelligence, you could be increasing the liability of different kinds of, of diseases. I think there's actually some, some data already on that, that various dystonias and, uh, that are correlated with whatever genes we understand relate to intelligence. But if something like conscientiousness can be dissected out genetically such that you get the right alleles and you are just four standard deviations above the norm in, in that trait, of course people are going to do it. Yeah, I think people will do it. And the people who perhaps even five years earlier were saying, oh, IQ is totally discredited, it's not heritable at all, nobody believes in it, we read Stephen Jay Gould, Mismeasure Man, IQ's bunk, right? Those will be the first people to use the genetic screening, I bet. Um, they will turn on a dime as soon as there's actual pragmatic benefits from it. I think the real issue then is going to be, um, are we going to have a society-wide push that tries to make access to that technology as widespread as possible so that whoever wants to use it can use it rather than it just being the preserve of, of, of the rich and the well-connected. Um, I think that's going to be the crucial inequality issue in about 20 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that would be a massive amplifier of inequality. So I guess I mean, another issue here is gender difference and not differences in aptitude, but even just differences in interest across genders. There is this blank slate dogma that men and women aren't actually different, despite the existence of things like a uterus. Uh, yeah. And so I guess this got focused very recently with, or in the last year with the, the James Damore memo and, and the Google firing. You know, I, I actually haven't spent as much time focused on Damore and his travails uh, subsequently, but how did, how did all of that shake down for you as an evolutionary psychologist? That was an interesting summer last summer, because um, 
right before the whole Demore Google memo thing blew up, I'd written a, uh, an artif article for Quillat.com uh, magazine called The Neurodiversity Case for Free Speech, in which I argued that people who have a range of uh, neurodivergent conditions like Asperger's or PTSD or whatever, um, it can be difficult to obey campus speech codes that say never be offensive to anybody else. Like, I'm, I'm pretty Aspie, and that means I can't always anticipate who I'll offend if I say something, because I don't have a good theory of mind. I don't understand other people's beliefs and desires mm -hmm. the way some folks do. So if you have a speech code that says, if you offend someone, you must have meant it, and you must be evil, and you should be punished, I was pointing out that's not really fair to people who are neurodivergent and who have Asperger's or lots of other syndromes. Then about a week later, James Amore, who is probably also on the Asperger's spectrum, right, Google engineer, mm -hmm. comes out with this memo saying, look, maybe some of the differences in men and women in terms of where they end up occupationally might be due to different preferences that they have about, you know, are they interested in things or people and how risk-seeking are they and so forth. And I read the memo and I thought, A, this is all pretty much scientifically correct. I would give this an A if this is a paper in a graduate seminar, but B, this is going to be a world of hurt for Demore because I'm sure Google doesn't want this news. And indeed, that's, that's what happened. But that, let's just pause there for a second because it is a shock, or at least it should come as a shock to us, that he was fired for writing something which you, a, a, an expert in the field, said is scientifically correct. Yeah. And, there, and there was no, there was no fra malicious framing of it. It was just this, this summary of what he believed to be the, the current science and his, his fairly tame pushback against this, this diversity indoctrination that he was having to, to weather as an employee. Uh, there's still people out there who think that he did something incredibly ugly that, that merited his firing, but we seem to be quite far from that. Yeah, I, I mean, when I read it, I thought it's actually surprising that someone who's not a psychology professor would get the empirical research pretty much that, that accurate. And it's kind of surprising and alarming that Google didn't care that it was accurate, that it, it transgressed their diversity agenda so awkwardly, precisely because his claims were empirically pretty well supported. So they didn't really have any defense apart from firing him and saying he perpetuated harmful gender stereotypes. That's all they could really, really do. Um, and that, I think, was a really bad moment in American culture because it means, well, it sends a message to everybody in every corporation that you can have views that are empirically well-grounded and perfectly reasonable and expressed as carefully and constructively as possible and still be subject to these witch hunts. Mm. And I think that exerts a massive chilling effect on public discourse and even discourse within companies. Yeah, yeah. Well, what has the aftermath been like? I, mean, I know there's a lawsuit, right? I, I, have you followed any of that? 
I haven't really followed it, followed it in detail because I know Google can afford better lawyers than yeah. more. Yeah. So, and this is America, so more expensive lawyers win. So I mean, we have these evolved moral capacities. We have evolved moral intuitions. We're you know, highly moralizing creatures. Being social primates, this extends to pretty much everything we do. There's, so there's, there's a descriptive story to tell about how we got here in terms of evolution. But there's a, a very different project, and this is something that I attempted to put forward my own views about in the moral landscape, which is a normative one. You can start from where we're at and just take an inventory of, of our moral hardware, such as it is, and then ask a very different set of questions. Just how good can human life become? How, could, how good can the, the life of any conscious creature become, given everything that we can change about ourselves and about our institutions and about our social arrangements? And so, so, so it's different to take an inventory of our moral psychology descriptively. I mean, someone like Jonathan Haidt will talk about human morality in terms of just what the facts on the ground. People have very strong intuitions about jealousy, say, or humiliation, or you know, a concern for authority and if, you're, if you're conservative, but not so much if you're liberal. But what I tend to want to do is ask a further question about just what is possible for conscious minds like our own in terms of flourishing. Do you think that's a valid differentiation, or do you still want to continue to see everything in evolutionary terms? Well, I think the, the evolved moral psychology that we have is a set of little tools that are largely about managing relationships like um, kinship and how nice should I be to my, my offspring and my blood relatives and managing reciprocity relationships and trade and managing in-group dynamics and making sure the clan and, and the tribe work. And then doing the little virtue signaling that we use to attract social and sexual partners. And that's sort of the toolbox that we have, but we can repurpose a lot of that stuff um, to uh, achieve levels of, of moral excellence and progress that go far beyond what any prehistoric human could have imagined. I mean, I really like, for example, the Deidre McCloskey idea that there's a set of bourgeois virtues that get cultivated under a capitalist society where to succeed as a, as a storekeeper in 18th century Europe, you have to pay attention to what kind of things am I offering to my customers? How can I add value to their lives so they will voluntarily exchange things with me? And that selects for conscientiousness and empathy and reliability and good reputation in ways that simply didn't happen before in prehistory. And then I think virtue signaling, you know, it gets a bad rap, but it's, it's been at the heart of almost every major ethical uh, development. Like, of course, the early anti-slavery abolitionists were partly virtue signaling my, here's my empathy, because I'm concerned about these other people I don't care about. Um, the, the animal rights movement, like, I care about cute, cuddly mammals, let's save them. You, it's easy to mock that, but virtue signaling lets you get a, a beachhead on moral issues that nobody would care about otherwise, right? Um, and I've seen this happen in um, the vegan movement that my girlfriend's involved with, that 
you know, the way to reach out to certain kinds of people is not necessarily to say, well, look, if you're a strict, you know, utilitarian, then, and, and here's the evidence for this animal having this level of sentience, therefore you shouldn't eat it. No, the way to, to popularize that movement is to make veganism a virtue, a social virtue, and, and then to convert your lovers and your friends and your family through that route. And I think it can be a great uh, source for moral progress. What keeps you awake at night as far as the, the risks that we face as a species? What, what worries you going forward? Um, I'm terrified about this set of risks called existential risks. Um, and my friends in the effective altruism community focus on those quite a bit. These are risks that are not just global catastrophic risks where millions could die or billions, but the risks where everybody could die. So existential meaning, does the human species go extinct entirely like within this century, or do at least a few of us survive? And the big existential risks that people worry the most about are nuclear war, um, bioweapons like engineered pandemics, mm. um, uh, artificial intelligence, things that aren't really existential risks, like, okay, meteor impacts, they would be X risks, but the probability it'll happen is extremely low. And those things are already being monitored. I think AI is the wild card. AI is what keeps me awake at night. Um, I've started to think and, and work a little bit on AI safety research. The issue there is nobody really knows how far we are away from developing an artificial general intelligence that will be smarter than us in at least some ways. It's very hard to predict what kind of agenda or behavior such a thing would have. Um, it's very hard to apply our intuitive psychology of like, how do you talk to such a thing or convince it or propagandize it if, if it might operate on completely different principles with different preferences and priorities than we do? So there's a lot of uncertainty. What we do know, though, is America and China are investing hugely in an AI arms race. And some of the top talent in both countries is going into this. And both countries are, are quickly realizing that if we fall behind, we'll be at a, a very serious military and economic and, and even cultural disadvantage. So that kind of makes me want to barf. And it's something also where people have been misprogrammed by Hollywood to worry about the wrong kinds of things happening. Well, what do you make of the fact that there's some very smart people who are arguably as close to the data as we are, who are not worried about this. This is something we were talking about backstage. What, is, what are they not seeing, and what's the likelihood that, they, that they're right and we're wrong to be concerned about AI? So, for example, Steven Pinker in the, the Enlightenment Now book, which I love and which is awesome, but there's a chapter in it on existential risk where he's fairly... Uh, dismissive of, of AI as an, as an X risk. Um, I think it's notable that a lot of people who used to be skeptical about AI as an X risk are now worried about it. A lot of people change their minds in that direction. 
there are very few people who say, oh, I used to worry about it last year, but now I've been convinced, yeah. you know, it's yeah, fine. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Chicken little, don't, don't worry. Well, just, on, just to take that structure, how many people are going that direction with monogamy versus polyamory? Yeah. There's, there's just a stampede out of monogamy. It's yeah. really cute. There's, um, there's, there's no stampede back? Um, just these, there's a these little stampede wrecked out people who... When, like, there's a little stampede out of monogamy in high school, and then there's a little bit of a stampede back when uh -huh. people get pregnant. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I think with the AI thing, my view is even, a, even something that causes a 1% chance of extinction is worth really worrying about very, very seriously and devoting billions of dollars to. Yeah. Yeah, a 1% probability of destroying absolutely everything is still a, a major yeah. thing to hedge against. Well, listen, I want to now open it to all of you because the, for me, the, the real motivation to have these live events is to make it a proper dialogue. So the, there should be microphones in the aisles should be two, and we would love your questions, and we have, we have a, a full hour where we can take them. So, so I guess we'll start over here, our left. Yep. Okay. All right, I think it's on. Is that on? Um, I should say, just as, as a preamble, if your question can end in a question, <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. If you can just, just even just accomplish a high-rising tone at the end of whatever you say. <laughs> uh, the audience will appreciate it, and if you can be brief, the, otherwise the, okay. you, you're surrounded by a thousand very impatient people. So. <laughs> All right. So, no, thanks so much for that. So, just, uh, just the, two things that I thought about. So, I lived in South Africa, was there for the SACO incident, I definitely remember that. But what I want to mention is that in so many places in Africa, uh, polygamy was the norm for the longest time. And even within that, like, they were so many folks are still going and having relationships with other, you know, with other women, and the 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 wives in that relationship are aware of that. It's actually almost a norm sometimes, but despite that fact, they still get jealous. And all of my younger African friends, when I ask them about this, they have no interest in polygamy, no interest in polyamory, or whatever. They want a monogamous relationship. So whenever you say this kind of stuff, for me, I'm thinking kind of like. I feel like some of this stuff has been tried before and it really didn't work. And even the people who were in situations like this are actually moving closer towards monogamy. Mm -hmm. And the, the second part of that is that we talked about from the people in the relationship standpoint, but what about the children? Because I know for me, myself, if I knew that my dad was going and having, even going on dates, even if he was announcing it, that's gonna really affect me and even my African friends who knew that their dads were going on this, it really affected them as well. Right. So what I want to know is why do you think that places that already have kind of relationships like this are actually moving towards monogamy rather than maintaining that? And two, what do you think the effect on children in such relationships is going to be? Yeah, good question. So polyamory is very different from traditional polygamy. Right, polygamy is there's there's one man with multiple woman women, and he's typically the high status dominant guy, and he sort of monopolizes a few local women, and then other guys don't have women, and they're frustrated. So it's a very socially destabilizing situation, 
with a lot of variation in reproductive success across men and, and a lot of uh, violence, actually. And this is exactly why cultural monogamy was instituted, to cut down on that violence and jealousy and, and sort of distribute mates more evenly. What they don't do in those cultures is any of the basic ethical precepts of polyamory, which is open, consensual, transparent communication with everyone about everything that's happening. So polyamory is as new relative to human mating as the smartphone. Mm. With all the, the strengths and benefits of that, it might be awesome, it might crash and burn terribly, we don't know yet, so far for some people it seems to work. And we can predict it won't work for everybody. Some people will not have the personality traits that make it work. I suspect successful poly requires, in today's culture, a very high degree of intelligence, organization, conscientiousness, emotional self-control, um, self-insight, um, anger management, all of that. The second question, briefly, I think kids are incredibly adaptable about whatever their parents are doing as long as they get good input and support and care from one or more adult caregivers, I think they can adapt pretty quickly to, to anything going on as long as there's not a whole lot of violence and abuse. Um, and we see, we see that in, in you know, every culture that has different mating norms. The kids don't care if they think it's normal as long as they're, they're being taken care of. Thank you. Hi, thank uh, both of you for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it and I enjoyed the podcast. Cool, thank you. This question's for Sam primarily, but it seems to have relevance to many of the issues that you've touched on in this conversation. So, uh, Sam, in your post-Charlottesville podcast with Douglas Murray, you articulated a hesitance to engage with Stefan Molyneux because he had talked with Jared Taylor and was therefore, in some sense, tainted. Yeah. Obviously, you should only have conversations you think are likely to be fruitful. But because you are so cognizant of incentives, do you see how publicly parameterizing your willingness to engage with people around this six degrees of Richard Spencer principle encourages the kind of dishonest smearing that you and so many of your friends have been subject to? Is the tarnished reputation of an interlocutor the right predictor of the value of a discussion? Yeah, well, I, again, this is, I have to confess, some uncertainty as to who anyone is. I mean, so I, I, I only know what I know about somebody like Stefan. I, I know enough, or at least I think I know enough about him to worry that he's not someone I should be speaking with. And, and one data point was the conversation I saw him have, have with Jared Taylor. So like, you know, presumably he knows who Jared is and he found no daylight between him and Jared when he was speaking to him on the podcast. I mean, they were, they were just like two peas in a pod. And Jared Taylor, you can see talking to just a straight up neo-Nazi, again, without any daylight between them, right? So this is not, again, this may seem like a, a transitive property that shouldn't be operating, but I think there's, some, there's something fishy there. Again, the ethics of this are not totally worked out in my head. I don't know where the line is between it being a bad thing to give someone a platform by just agreeing to talk to them, or it being a good thing to invite someone on who holds morally reprehensible views 
and just debate them and just air those views. And I, I don't know where the line is. And strangely, it gets much easier. And I think, I've, I think I said this when I was speaking to Douglas on that podcast. It gets much easier when the person is obviously evil, right? Like, if you, you know, if I could talk to the Unabomber and not have to waste any fuel virtue signaling to my audience saying, you know, it's a really terrible thing you did sending those bombs in the mail. I mean, that would just, that would go without saying. And so it's kind of an uncanny valley problem with respect to moral culpability. I don't know if you have any thoughts about this and, you know, who, who one should talk to and where one draws the line, but I'm just, I'm still working it out. And I don't, I mean, Stefan is kind of a, a corner case and I admit to not having spent many hours trying to figure out who he is. So thank you very much. Hi, Sam. Um, I just first want to say that I really appreciate your style of communication. It's really changed the way that I've dealt with people on a daily basis. Oh, cool. Thank um, you. And um, my question is, how do we reconcile the difference between our biological need to reproduce and growing concerns that overpopulation might be a problem in the future? It's not clear to me what the consensus is now with respect to population concerns. I mean, it's like the, there, you can find people who are just as concerned about underpopulation. You know, it's like the, the difference between there being too many of us and too few of us might come down to like 20 people. Uh, it's like you know, there's, this, there's this weird factoid that in Japan right now they sell more adult diapers than kids' diapers. That's fairly alarming to picture. If we could get fully obedient AI and to service our needs and, you know, and I guess in the context of this conversation, those needs could extend to, you know, polyamorous robots, <laughs> something like Westworld. <laughs> but in the absent that, I mean, it, it, seem, it, it does seem, and maybe you have some insight into this, but it seems like we are in some vast Ponzi scheme. You need a new generation to stack under this, this looming pyramid of, of aging people. What, what are your thoughts on, on world population and what it's going to be like to have nine or 12 billion of us? I mean, I'm, I'm pretty pro-natalist, and I think there's a lot of alarmism about overpopulation. It has been since the 70s. Most of that alarmism hasn't come true. That was, but, that was Paul Ehrlich, right? Right, yeah. yeah, the population bomb. Yeah. Um, I think, as a utilitarian, the more people, the better all else being equal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that gets me excited about managing the AI X risk is if we do it, if we survive, if we colonize the solar system, the galaxy, the supercluster, and then we have, we could have 10 to the 30th sentient beings that are post-human. I think that would be amazing. Um, I'm willing to add up utilities and go the more the better. So uh, we should have that long view that that as long as we don't wreck the planet in a really predictably dramatic, horrible way, we should, we should have some faith that our little kids and grandkids will be smart and will be able to help solve problems we can't even solve yet. That's a relief, thank you. Um, so it seems to me that money in politics is the largest problem in American society today because it's the problem that stops all the problems from being solved. So, for example, uh, Sam, if you think um, a lack of an AI safety net is a huge problem, then if technology companies lobby against that solution uh, because it increases their revenue, 
then that problem won't be solved. So my question for you, or for either, for either of you, is um, what are your thoughts on money and politics? Oh, I think it is a huge problem. It, it, it's hard to solve because the line between money and free speech is hard to draw. So it's like, how do you stop someone from spending you know, millions and millions of dollars that they've earned in ethical ways to broadcast a message they care about? And how do you, how do you stop that from being politically effective? Because that really is, that's the problem of money in politics. I mean, we, we, you, could, you could get out of the game of funding campaigns through donations, but still you would have this contribution to, to the messaging that only rich people can really fully leverage. I mean, that, again, there's, there's other things that are, are happening now, as we noticed in the last election, the role, of, you know, the role of money in politics was kind of hard to discern because Hillary Clinton outspent Trump by some massive factor and what he accomplished on social media with or without the help of uh, nefarious actors, that was, that was effective. So it's, money is less useful than it used to be, uh, at least uh, judging from the last election. But it, I, don't, I, mean, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. You're right. It's a huge problem. I have no idea how to fix it. Um, if the, to me, the, the more systemic problem is just American political systems aren't built to handle long-term planning and dealing with existential risks and having a planning horizon of, of decades the way yeah. that like the Chinese system does seem to think about that. That's not narrowly tied to money, that's just tied to our election cycle, but the fact that every decision is captured by the short-term political needs of getting re-elected in two or four or six years, that's, that's a disaster when, you, when you're talking about multi-decade problems. So, yeah. This is for this is for Sam and Jeffrey. Um, I think people are afraid of admitting differences across different groups because they don't believe either themselves or others can treat people as individuals. Do y'all think, are, are most people in society at the point where they can admit differences across these groups and still treat people as individuals? I think people fear that most people won't have the nuance to do that. They'll start putting them in hierarchies and say, okay, I'm going to put this one person at a low because I just don't want to treat them as individual. Well, I, I, that clearly is the remedy for what so many people are worried about, I mean, to treat people as individuals. But we know that that's hard to do, you know, or it's, 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 it's easy to take shortcuts that are discriminatory, right? So if you're just, if you, if you have a bias and you're not going to spend any time worrying that you have one, you're just going to be driven by that bias. And that bias, insofar as it focuses on things like skin color or gender or any you know, broad course attribute, you're just disadvantaging that segment of the population. So it, it takes extra work to just find out who somebody is. So people are, I think people were, were right to worry about the shortcuts, but clearly, no, I mean, we want, we want to treat people as individuals. And there's nothing we know about average group differences that suggests that it would be wise not to treat people as individuals. The differences within groups are so much wider than the differences between groups for any variable that we, if only for selfish reasons, you know, just you, you're some, you know, completely, utterly greedy corporation that just wants the best employees, you should be 
absolutely focused on, on individual strengths and, and weaknesses. Do you think we're there as a society, and do you think that's an easy message to get everyone to adhere to? We're clearly not there as a society, but I think it's, it's the only message that makes sense. So, you know, it's just, I don't see an alternative. I think we just have to keep talking about what's true and what's politically ethical. I mean, clearly we want equality across the board politically. We want, every, we, we want to spread opportunity as widely as possible. And then it really is, then it's just individuals who come through the door. You know, you don't have, you don't have categories of people who show up for jobs, you have individuals. Yeah. Hi, um, are either of you familiar with Ian McGilchrist's book, uh, The Master and His Emissary? Yeah. Or more generally, um, if, if not, um, how has the prevailing science concerning brain later lateralization and split brain patients um, shaped your view of consciousness or even free will? That's an interesting book. I actually haven't read all of it. I've, I've read part of it, but it is, uh, it's, I've read enough to, to be able to recommend it. But it's a, you know, this is a, he makes a lot of the split brain research. I'm not sure everything he thinks about the significance of the split brain is, is uncontroversial, but I mean, the split brain, I wrote about it in, in my book, Waking Up, and maybe somewhere else, but it, it's, it's one of the strangest findings in science, and it's, it's a finding that's very difficult to, to take on board. I mean, it, it, briefly, for those of you who are not familiar with it, I mean, there, there's, going back now 50 years, there's been a well-established re result in neurosurgery, which if, if people have grand mal epilepsy, you can perform a procedure where you, you cut the, the white matter tracts that link the two cerebral hemispheres, and keep the seizure activity from spreading to the left or from, from the left to the right or vice versa. And that mitigates the, the problem of, of, of this, the seizure disorder to some significant degree. And for the longest time, people felt that there was no other change in, in these patients until Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga and Aran Zidell and some other clever experimenters put them in a paradigm where you could, you could send information to the left or the right hemisphere by itself. And what was discovered, I think this is fairly uncontroversial to say, is that once you divide the two hemispheres, you basically have two sub separate subjects in there that have different beliefs and different desires and different perceptions. And what that suggests about us undivided people is that that may be true to some degree even now in a connected brain because it's hard to believe that there's perfect information sharing across the, the hemispheres with intact white matter tracks. And so it, it, it suggests that there is something, there is something quasi-Freudian about it in the, in the sense that there's a, I mean, the Freud said a lot of crazy stuff that can't be rehabilitated, but one of the crazy things which may not be so crazy is this idea of an unconscious mind that is conscious in its own right, right? That, that is, in order to, to censor something, there was always this paradox of repression. It was like, somewhere in you, you have to know what you're repressing. It takes a consciousness to sort of draw the line between the unconscious and, and the conscious. And 
there's something. It's not doesn't have a exactly a Freudian character, but there there is a, a spooky picture that emerges here of the possibility of there being islands of conscious life in the brain that are not fully integrated. Consciousness could be a kind of continually changing sort of Venn diagram of of conscious states, which that which overlap and to greater or lesser degrees in each moment, depending on on just what is what is happening neurophysiologically. What what did the split brain data do to your brain? I mean, I'm I'm more struck really by the way that we we sort of become different people over time, particularly interacting with different intimate partners or different friends, and they all bring, just bring out different parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think the the illusion that there's a unitary self that is maintained under all these different social conditions is an illusion. And to bring it back to polyamory, um, an interesting thing about having multiple intimate relationships in parallel with people is you get to have kind of a, a bigger proportion of yourselves, you know, manifest over time rather than just kind of shrinking it down to, to the, one, the one role, the one self. Once again, apologies for all of you who are just celebrating your first anniversary. <laughs> Hello. Um, so I work IT, and uh, I know. Sorry, that I missed that. I work in IT, uh -huh. and I know that you guys are not comfortable with the idea of an AI. But uh, the question I pose is actually, what is the moral position expected? And this is for both of you. Uh, moral position you guys expect from the IT field, if you could summarize it in a sentence or a very short, brief statement so that I can show my friends at work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I agree with the kinds of things that, that people like Nick Bostrom and Eliezer Yudkowsky have said about this. I think, I think we have to get out of an arms race condition. We clearly need, at some point, we will need some regulation here, and it's just on the principle that there are more ways to build dangerous AI than safe AI. I mean, in the, in the space of all possible superintelligent systems, there are more that will not be aligned with our interests than will be. And therefore, it seems plausible that it will be easier to build dangerous AI than, than truly aligned AI. And so an arms race is, is the perfect scenario to to do this badly, right? So we need we need to be able we need to give the resources to the alignment and to and to the safety question. You mean military profits? What was that? Military profits, perhaps? I, I'm uh, sorry, I couldn't get you that. You mean that it would be easier because of profits, military profits? Well, it, it, no, it's just easier. It's just there are more ways to do this wrong. It's like it's just there are more ways to fall off a high wire than to stay on it. You know, it's it's just it's. It's a, a narrower set of results in, in the space of all possible systems. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to imply with these AIX risk concerns that there's anything sort of bad about IT. I, I have huge respect for IT industry. It's delivered awesome benefits and progress to humanity. Everybody in this room has been a beneficiary of computer technology in thousands of ways we never could have anticipated a few decades ago. But this is going to be IT's biggest ethical test ever, is does it take AIX risks seriously? 
rather than just kind of getting caught up in, 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 in the romance and the thrill and, and the, the chase. And I was caught up in this. My first 20 or 30 papers were on machine learning back when I was in grad school. And I wrote papers that I thought, this would be awesome. This, this method will allow us to integrate evolution and learning and create new systems. And I never once stepped back and, and asked, oh, but what, you know, what's the possible downside? I know from firsthand experience how easy it is to get swept up in that, that drive to, to do the next thing. But it, it, this is a crucial place for, for IT and AI folks to take that step back and, and to recognize you know, their own foibles in terms of the temptation, like, I, I want to do something even better than AlphaGo. And just realize the, there are 8 billion other people who depend on you not messing this up. Yeah. But again, the problem is it is an arms race. So there's, there's no percentage for the person or the team that is being cautious when everyone else is being reckless and just trying to get into the end zone as, as fast as possible. And so it's, it's, we, need a, we need some kind of global solution to this. It's not going to work if it's just, even if it's just the, the big players in Silicon Valley. I mean, it's that, you know, we have to somehow agree with China and anyone else who's likely to, to do this. So, yeah. uh, My question is for Sam, but I'm sure both of you can answer. I feel like I stumbled upon like a little gold mine when I found you. I think it was one of my little angry atheist binges on YouTube. But um, after I read your book, uh, Lying, I felt like it actually did give me, a, like you said, a firmware upgrade in my brain mm. on my morals and everything I ever thought of. I had to rethink because most of it was based off of lying. I was wondering if there was anything that you ever just completely grew or like just changed on as far as your morals or your core beliefs for someone who's been fairly consistent as far as I can tell in all of your beliefs and thoughts and attitudes for things that you've said you know years ago in interviews you can seem to say them now so is there anything that you've ever just changed on that you feel has changed who you are and now the way you see the world well the, the line piece was, was huge for me, but that came before I was you know, publicly doing anything. That came when I was 18 and 19. That's why I wrote that book. I mean, it was, so, it was such a fundamental change in my life and in my perception of just human life in general to, to recognize how harmful lying was and, and the motivation that was almost always behind it, right? Just the, the fear and the separateness and the, and the the sense that you're, on, you're not on the same team with the person you're talking to, even though this ostensibly is, is your, a close friend. You know, the temptation to tell a white lie was not something I, I, I noticed as being toxic or divisive or, or ethically suspect until suddenly I, I, I did, in this, as I recount in the book, in this course at Stanford. And once I just decided, okay, lying is basically on the continuum of violence, and which is to say it's almost never something you want to be involved in and unless you're in some kind of moral emergency that it's just so massively simplified my life I, mean, I was not someone who was walking around lying all the time and and you know aware of the downside but i just it just to realize that you are committed to being honest with everyone you meet no matter how 
brief the transaction and that you don't want two sets of books you know, with the people you love and, the, and, the, and then with strangers. You don't want two ethical codes. You want the same code in your personal life as you have in business. All of, all of that was so um, personally transformative. And then, and then once you're seeing the world through that lens, then you see just all of the needless misery and, and chaos being manufactured by people not having that same epiphany. I mean, then you watch television and you see people like you know, Lance Armstrong and, and the other famous people just completely flame out based on all the lies they've been telling and all the, all the social arrangements they've, they've created that, are, that were only possible based on their willingness to lie. So that was, that was the biggest one I can think of for me. What about for something like, let's say, polyamory? I don't think anybody wakes up when they're you know, eight years old and decides I'm going to be polyamorous. It's something that just yep. kind of grows later on out of experience or what have you. Well, I'm, not, I'm not yet convinced that I want to be polyamorous. <laughs> Uh, but Not yet. Je Not yet. Jeffrey's only had an hour to, to work his magic on me. Uh, but, Strangely uh, enough, it was reading Sam's book on lying that was a spark towards polyamory. In, the, in, in this sense that I realized most marriages are founded on continual low-level lying about a lot of aspects of our fantasy lives and our mm -hmm. sexual desires and our flirtations and our frustrations. And it is extremely hard for pair-bonded people to be truly open and entirely honest with each other if they don't broaden the context of their relationship a little bit. That's probably not true for everybody, but I think it's true for a lot of people. And to me, one of the key attractions of polyamory was precisely that I can imagine this would be a much more open, honest, ethical, upfront way to live than the typical monogamous marriage. That's interesting. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I can go all the way. I can sort of run polyamory and emulation there because I understand that jealousy is something you want to get over. I mean, jealousy doesn't make sense in that you are ostensibly committed to the happiness of this other person. In fact, this is the person you most want to be happy in the world, if this is the person you love most in the world. And the idea that something that would make this person happy is something that absolutely horrifies you, there's some cognitive and emotional algebra to do there to, to understand what's going on. And, and I mean, I, I can certainly see this you know, again, the, the hassle factor here seems pretty high, at least as I imagine what it would be like to, to live this way. But if I imagine, you know, you know, I have some terminal illness and I have to envision what my wife's life is going to be like after I die, well, of course I want her to be in a, in a fulfilling relationship. And I, mean, I, want, I want all of that stuff to happen. And that's not something that I would be thinking about, I mean, jealousy, jealousy would clearly not apply in that circumstance. And so, but I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Here. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. Uh, I hope you can come to Houston more often. Yep, thank you. So, <clears throat> this, questions go, this question goes to both of you. The concern about uh, artificial intelligence is reasonable. It is a fear to the unknown. I saw the other day the 3D doodle learning how to run 
I don't know if you, if you uh, saw yeah, it. Yeah. So it's it's a concern. At some point, it could become completely independent and capable of destroying us. How would you make a case for human life to be more valuable than artificial intelligence so we would have the right to shut them down or to avoid them calling us slavers, for example, which is what would ha happen if we had property rights over them? There's, there's something a little misleading about the way I tend to frame this conversation because I often talk about AI risk as though there, as though there were a break that we could pull or there, as though there were some alternative to developing more and more intelligent machines. I, I don't think there is. I think intelligence is the most valuable thing we have and we want more of it. I mean, it, it's an intrinsic good until it becomes misaligned with our utility function. So. I just think we will do this. I mean, we, it, 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 unless we destroy ourselves some other way, we will continue to improve our hardware and software. And then the only assumption you need is that, that intelligence, general intelligence, is platform independent. There's nothing magical about having a, a computer made of meat. This, whatever we're doing can be done in, in another substrate, and that's obviously so. I mean, there's no, there's no scientific reason to think that that's not just a matter of time. And so I think we will do it, and then it's, it's we, we just need to create the right incentives to do it wisely. And it's still, we still might blow it. But I, I, I really don't see a way to stop. For pure wealth creation reasons, just pure greed, there's just, there's just too much of an advantage to anyone who has a more intelligent system the advantages commercially and, and as a matter of political control. I mean, it's just someone, this, this is happening. I mean, what I would like to see is a kind of cultural um, tradition develop that we have a kind of aesthetic or nostalgic preference for keeping around our legacy systems, that we don't upgrade everything all the time, that even if humans are completely outclassed by AIs, that they'll still want us around as kind of cute, nostalgic pets, or just as sort of a fallback position, like if their civilization collapses, at least we'll still be able to run around and do our, our hunter-gatherer thing. And I think that should be extended up to every level of, of complexities. You should always hedge your bets, and you should always you know, try to keep around your, your ancestors, kind of out of gratitude, if nothing else, as long as you can. And the, uh, the science fiction novels by Ian M. Banks, the culture novels, I, to me are a very compelling example of how to do that, where the civilization is run by hyper-intelligent AIs, but they still keep humanoids around for their own mysterious reasons. What and, do you think about the prospect of merging with the machines, that we're going to tether this to our brains very early? I think some of us should do that, but I, I hope we can also have little islands of people who just kind of stay insulated voluntarily, just as sort of insurance. Um, I think that's where you get the, the sort of defense in depth against existential risk, is you don't have everything wired into the same vulnerable systems. Thank you. This question is for, is for Sam. This is a very general question. However, in the long run, what do you think AI's impact on world politics will be? Can AI only lead to a universal basic income or maybe another system? I'm a kind of uninformed fan of 
the concept of UBI. I mean, I, I see just, again, this is not, I haven't spoken with, with many economists about it, and it's quite possible there's some downside to it that I've, I'm not seeing, but it seems to me just generally speaking that if it, AI works, insofar as it works and insofar as it doesn't become a, a safety concern, it, it, what, what you have is a just an engine of wealth creation of a sort we've never seen before. And you have a, a technology that is canceling the need for human labor in a way that we've never seen before. So that there's, there are jobs that disappear that don't get replaced. And at a certain point, this, this ethic and this politics and this economics we have around everyone's need to work, everyone's need to find something that others will pay them to do, that has to break down. We have to change. It's just, you, your, your lease on your own existence can't be a matter of, of you, you doing profitable labor when there's no longer a need for profitable labor. And that, that was you know, the, the, sort of the utopian case, but absent getting those ethics and getting the ethics and politics right, it's a, it's a very dystopian case. Then you're, you're, you're talking about massive wealth inequality and an unwillingness to spread the wealth around as a kind of bottleneck on the way to whatever this weird future is. And so I, it seems to me that we're, we're fully capable of getting this wrong. I mean, there are enough people in the world who you know, don't want to provide you know, universal health care, for instance, right? And, so, and even, if you, even if you could bring that cost down to nothing, right, there will still be some people who will be arguing that you shouldn't get a free lunch and that, and that people need to be forced to get some purchase on their own survival through labor, otherwise they're just going to be playing video games all day long or, or you know, will be living in some kind of Aldous Huxley novel. And there, I think there is a risk of that. I mean, there's a risk of, of people not finding meaningful ways to spend their time if this happens suddenly, certainly. But we, we need a culture that, that informs us about how to live really rich and, and beautiful lives that ultimately is not tied to necessary work. Then it can be tied to you know, all the creative stuff uh, and the fun stuff we're inclined to do. You know, all the stuff you would want to do if you didn't have to work, right? Now, some, some of us are, some people are, are incredibly lucky. I mean, I'm, like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing something right now as a job that I would want to do anyway. Right, which is, I mean, it's a fantastically privileged situation to be in, but not everyone is in that situation. And, and so we, we um, the more and more the world w should have the character of people doing what they would want to do anyway. And, and that's, that would be something that AI could, could do for us if it doesn't destroy us. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you for coming out. I was wondering, when you speak of morality and how we treat other species in the world, what you think um, factory farming is or how you, what your viewpoints on factory farming are today as someone who eats meat and how you think it can be moral and just to do such a thing and well, how it would be better to like... Well, I confess that I'm, I'm a work in progress on this topic and my moral intuitions get knocked around by a few different arguments and... The first thing to concede is that factory farming, as it is currently practiced, is 
almost entirely a horror show and is, and is indefensible. I, th I think we, we, we want more ethical factory farming or more ethical farming than we have. But if you could make it ethical enough, and we were actually just talking about this before this event, if you could make it sufficiently ethical so that each one of these animals had a net positive life, it, it was better to exist than not if you're a, a cow, say, well then that does undercut the argument for vegetarianism or veganism because we're, we're now talking about billions of creatures that would never exist but for the fact that we need to eat them. Right? So again, you have to stipulate that these are happy cows or reasonably happy cows such that it is better to have been that cow than to have not existed at all. I think that's certainly conceivable, but absent that, I'm hopeful that things like clean meat will come to the rescue here. I, I'm, you know, I think like I had Uma Valetti, the CEO of Memphis Meats, on the podcast a while back, and they're developing meat products that are real meat, but just there's no animal in the equation. As you've taken a single cell from you know, the best tasting cow ever, and you've amplified that in a perfectly sterile environment, and you have none of the chaos of a slaughterhouse, and no xenoviruses, and no, no bacteria, and you can grow, I mean, they now have a, you know, an $18,000 meatball, uh, which I think has recently become a $6,000 meatball, but eventually it'll be a, a $6 meatball or a six, 60 cent meatball. And then we'll have, you'll have real meat without any ethical implication unless, you're, unless it's actually worse than having happy cows. But that would be a good problem to have. Yeah. So Sam, you speak a lot about how the sense of self is an illusion. Mm -hmm. But then whom or what is actually aware of consciousness and its contents if there is no sense of or self at all to be observing that? Well, it's just that consciousness is aware of itself and its contents. As a matter of experience, there's just consciousness and its contents. Mm -hmm. So there's, you know, there's thoughts and sensations and sights and sounds and emotions and, and this, everything you can notice is appearing in, in consciousness and as consciousness, as an elaboration of, of consciousness. And one thing that most people feel is there is the feeling of being a subject, the feeling of being a kind of changeless agent, an author of, of thoughts and intentions. And that's the illusion that can be penetrated. If you look for that thing, you can fail to find it in a way that's conclusive. And that's, I mean, that's the practice of meditation is nothing other than, than you know, that kind of first-person experiment that one runs on oneself again and again until one can actually notice that about consciousness. That consciousness feels a certain way prior to each thought arising. I mean, the, the sense of self, from my point of view, the sense of I, the sense that, that, that there's a thinker of thoughts in addition to the thoughts, or an experiencer of experience in addition to just experience, that's what it's like to be thinking without knowing that you're thinking in that moment. It's what it's like to be captured by thought. And I think we, most people, I think everyone is continually losing their sense of self. It's just, they're just not noticing it. You're, you're continually losing your sense of self. I mean, we have this phrase, we have this concept of like being lost in your work right, or lost in a movie, right? So like at each moment, when, when you're really watching a movie and you're, and you're so absorbed in it 
that it's I mean, it's it's really working. The illusion is happening. You, you're just you're you're not you're not aware for that moment that you're sitting in a room with other people. You're not aware that you're just looking at light on a wall. You know, you're just fully captured by the the fiction. That's a moment where you've lost yourself. Yet, but it's not vivid in the way that it, it can be if you learn how to meditate. And it is it is actually just the what consciousness is like when you're not thinking. Thank you. So my first question is for Jeffrey. Um, my second question is for Sam, but Jeffrey might have something to talk about this as well. Jeffrey, do you practice hierarchical poly or relationship anarchy? And Sam, what was the best LSD experience you've had? Sorry, I, 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 didn't, I didn't get that. Uh, what was the best LSD experience you've had? Oh, okay. Okay. So the first question is about relationship anarchy and what, what else? Uh, hierarchical poly, which yeah. do you prefer? Um, I think, yeah, so basically I practice hierarchical poly, which means I'm in a long-term, long-distance, pair-bonded relationship with a primary partner who is the most important to me, and then we each have secondary partners who we spend less time with, and, you know, each of those relationships may last weeks, months, years, but they don't tend to last as, as long. Maybe they will someday. Relationship... Anarchy is sort of a view that you kind of create the relationship that each person deserves on the fly, kind of negotiated ad lib, and uh, there's kind of a minimization of expectations and commitment in terms of the people who do that who I've talked to the most. I don't think that is going to be a very viable option for most people most of the time. Relationship anarchy probably works well like in college or if you're a single adult. Um, but I think if you're sharing a house, a mortgage, kids with somebody, I think you've got to have hierarchical poly and they've got to be your primary. Nothing else really makes sense to me. Um, so there's all these varieties of consensual non-monogamy that you in the audience have heard about, most of which are very puzzling. And uh, again, watch this space. These are rapidly developing subcultures that are kind of systematically exploring this, the, the space of possible human relationship patterns. And most of them won't end up working very well, but it's really valuable to the rest of us for them to report back, you know, what worked and what didn't, and what, what are the lessons learned, and how can we integrate them into our lives? Yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that relationship anarchy is not going to be the the final solution to our problem. Uh, maybe it just needs to be rebranded. Um, well, I had, I've had, I had many good acid trips until I started having bad ones, and then I stopped taking acid. But I, I don't know how common this is or not, but I had, you know, maybe the first, the first 10 times I took acid, there was just no intimation at all that it was even possible to have a bad trip. I'd, I'd, I'd heard this concept of a bad trip but I couldn't imagine what that entailed. It just—it was just no reference point. And then I had my first bad trip, and then for, thereafter, I knew exactly what was—you know—just what sort of roulette wheel I was spinning each time I, I did this. And I think the, the possible downside is is something one should have real respect for. I mean, you can have a—I think your drugs are different. I mean, some drugs are, I think are probably neurotoxic. I don't think LSD is. I think so. Physically, it's not a matter of LSD being bad for you. But 
I think bad trips are bad for you. And, and you, can, you can damage yourself just by, on the basis of having a, a terrible experience. So it's, it's, it's worth being cautious. But you know, I've, I've had many amazing trips. Well, I mean, one, I mean, this just suggests to you just how acid is, is um, it's sort of arbitrary where you are. So we had, we decided to, we were going to, um, we camped out above Muir Woods in, in Marin. Muir Woods has the, the, some of the tallest redwoods in the world, or the tallest redwoods in the world. And so we, we camped out, and, and our plan was at dawn, we were going to dr drop acid and, and hike down into, the, into this towering forest of trees. So we, the, the first part of the plan went well. We woke up at dawn, and we dropped acid. And we got... <laughs> But we came, I mean, it was maybe like a mile down to the big trees, but we came on so fast that we just got caught with more or less the first tree we, we met. Um, and it was, just, you know, we, we discovered maybe, you know, 10 hours later that it was a perfectly ordinary tree. I mean, this was like, it was like a 20-foot tall, you know, oak tree um, that, you know, just contained the secrets of the universe. So... Uh, I don't know what the lesson is in that, but it, uh, camp closer to your favorite tree if you're going to do this. Uh, yeah. uh, first off, thank you both so much for your time. Uh, yeah. Dr. Miller, just broadly speaking, how would you advise an individual to be more honest with themselves, uh, to challenge themselves, to search for that objectivity and... Sam, do you find that more difficult now than, say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when maybe you're a bit more uh, anonymous, mm. I guess? So I, I did this book of dating advice for young single guys called Mate a couple of years ago. And honesty with oneself in that context, I think, had a lot to do with trying to help young men figure out, figure out what do I really have to offer if I'm straight and I'm looking for a girlfriend? What do I really seriously have to offer a woman that she might want? And a lot of people are extremely self-deceived about that. And they don't have a good, they don't have a well-calibrated mate value and they don't have a good sense of what am I kind of stuck with that I can't change and what, what could I actually level up if I put a little bit of work into it? And also, uh, what do I take pride in that nobody else actually cares about versus what could I change about myself that would add value in a relationship. And I think you can generalize that, not just in you know, seeking romantic partners, but asking yourself, what do I really give to my friends? Maybe the things they value about me aren't the things I think they value about me or the things I value about myself. What do I really give to my family? So I think honesty is not just a matter of sitting down and navel-gazing, but I think it's about interrogating what value do you bring to your actual and potential relationships? And I think that's a really useful mirror for kind of getting a better sense of, of who, who you are and who you can be in the future. Each place in my life has been, has, has been so different. And something like now I have uh, children and I mean, they're just joys and, and growth as a parent that totally unlike whatever was going on 15 or 20 years ago, being able to be in contacts like this and have conversations like this, I mean, that's, it's, all, it's all to the good and all very different. But 
the there are other doors that close, you know, as you get older and and have kids. And and I mean, for instance, being able to decide to do a, a three month silent retreat, you know, that's not something that I feel free to do now, because I just couldn't go offline for that long and, and not you know be in, in touch with my daughters. And so I mean, at, at some point in my life, I, I will I'll expect to be able to do that again. But I mean, this is something that that I don't think we tell people enough that there are, there are periods in life that are kind of discreet and that, that, that do, for most of us, come to an end, and you want to make use of those periods wisely. It's like uh, no one tells you that you make most of your friends very early in life and you tend to keep them, right? Like, I don't know what teenagers and college students would do differently with that knowledge, but I mean, people, people tend to make a lot of friends or, or some core friends early, and then they in many cases, go the rest of their lives without forming deep friendships, apart from finding a, a spouse. And there are many other things, like you just, you know, if sitting, sitting retreat, as I said. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you, you, if you don't foresee how your life is going to change when you suddenly decide to have kids, you won't be aware that the, the door to that opportunity is, is closing for you. And so, but yeah, I'm, a, I'm in a very nice place in, in my life now, and, and uh, it's, I've got no complaints at this at this moment. So, if my when when you see my website go down, you'll you'll know that I'm shrieking in anguish in my office. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, my question is for Sam. Yeah. Um, at this point in time, are there any specific or just general uh, thoughts that you have that you'd like to see changes uh, from the federal government in terms of domestic and foreign policy? in terms of uh, preventing and dealing with terrorism? I don't know what's going on that's not being advertised, right? So it's like I have no, I'm not on the inside of, of any of these conversations. So maybe they're doing much that I would want them to do and they're just not really talking about it. But I think we, you know, people like Majid Nawaz, and Ayan Hirsi Ali really have this right. I mean, we have a, a, an ideology, I mean, it's to speak specifically of, of jihadism, we have an ideology that we have to counter, and it, is a, it has to be a war of ideas more than it's a war. And it, we have to take that problem seriously. We have to win a war of ideas with the Muslim world, and we have to get the Muslim world to win a war of ideas with itself recognizing that you know, we're having the message come from outside, from non-Muslims who are just worried about radicalization is not going to be effective. So we have, we have to figure out how to support reformers and apostates and free thinkers in the Muslim world, and that has to be a real priority. And that's, it's taboo to even acknowledge that that's a problem, that we have more of a problem with Islam than with Mormonism or Scientology or, mm -hmm. or Anglicanism or any other religious cult. And that's, we have to acknowledge that and we have to have people who are, who are pouring massive resources intelligently into solving that problem. So, okay, thank you. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Yeah. So having grown up in a religious cult uh, and uh, shaken the, the shackles of those beliefs and indoctrinations, can, I want to Can you get a little closer to the mic? I want to personally thank you for yeah. having been a part of me, you know, my re-education and growing up uh, mentally. Okay. So thank you. Uh, in light of that, what, um, what do you feel is a bigger threat to our future um, 
the ideologies and dogmas of our, our history and our religion and our culture uh, or, you know, polyamorous robots taking mm -hmm. our jobs, you know, what's, wh where do you value spending our time and energy, you know, do we worry more about the effects of the past or should we worried about new threats from the future? I mean, really, for, for me, it does come down to the primacy of conversation. I view what we're doing here successfully, billions of us strangers figuring out how to collaborate peacefully and creatively and, and safely together. That is a matter of successful conversations, one after another. We have to, we, we're, we're, we're learning to converge on the same values or similar enough values. We're learning to form institutions that, that bring these values to scale, you know, whether it's laws or, or politics or, or uh, and we do, this, we do this better locally and we don't do it very well globally yet. But we clearly, we, we, we have to do it globally. And it is a matter of having words suffice, right? Because otherwise, uh, there's just an appeal to force. And we have to get out of the force business. I, I don't know that we're going to get out of it anytime soon. But at a certain point, war has to become unthinkable, right? I mean, what's the alternative? We, ha we have to get to a place globally where a war between the U.S. and China, say, seems just as preposterous as a war between, you know, Texas and California now. We have to get there somehow. That clearly is the end game for a viable global civilization that will press out toward other planets and, and the stars, right? So every problem we can, we can solve together will be soluble because we are collaborating peacefully and creatively to solve that problem, whether it's AI or anything else. If we suddenly had, a, if we were suddenly attacked by Martians or, or we were facing some global pandemic, right, are we gonna solve that problem? Well, we will solve it if, insofar as we figure out how to cooperate intelligently if, it, if we're smart enough to, to solve it. But solving, solving these failures, of, these needless failures of cooperation is, is the, the huge task. And things like religious dogmatism and sectarianism or racism or nationalism or other forms of tribalism, those are clearly bugs in the system when you're talking about this kind of large-scale cooperation. So. so it's just kind of evolution running its course, and it's going to... Well, no, it's, 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 it's not evolution. It's the, oh, it's the evolution of, of ideas. Yeah. yeah, it's not a matter of... of I mean, we are, by virtue of, of evolution, we are not well-poised to build a global civilization that works. I mean, we, evolution can't see the things we need, the tools we need to develop to do this well. You know, evolution doesn't know anything about democracy or capitalism or AI. So we're, I mean, we've got the tools we have, but we're developing new tools, and that's, that's culture. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I would love to hear thoughts from both of you on how you think our K-12 education system needs to change and what it needs to look like given a future of artificial intelligence and trucks that drive themselves so we don't mm. need truck drivers anymore. Mm. I'll let you take that. I think you, you also have some thoughts on the future of universities, I think. Mm. Well, one little thing. In every class I teach now at university, I ask my students, 
What do you guys know about free speech? What do you know about the First Amendment? What do you know about your rights as students in terms of expressing diverse viewpoints? They know nothing. American K through 12 is absolutely failing them in terms of teaching them the most fundamental parts of civics, you know, their rights, understanding of government, and they're absolutely handicapped as citizens as a result. If they don't know, you know, basic uh, rights, then they can't really engage with society with any confidence. Um, so that's one little thing. I think one thing I've, I've pushed for a very long time is to try to get schools to rethink what are we really trying to produce? Are we trying to produce citizens or workers or just well-rounded people or folks who will make good friends, lovers, parents, etc.? I think actually it's very, very difficult for K through 12 schooling to predict what knowledge and skills will be useful in 20 or 30 years. It's a lot less difficult to predict what kinds of social skills, communication abilities, um, empathy, mindfulness will be useful in social and sexual relationships. Now, it's very hard to get government schools <laughs> to go, okay, we're going to teach kids how to be just awesome polyamorous robot lovers. Because mm. those skills will last. But if I had a voucher system and I had my own school franchise, that's, that's what I would teach. Um, <laughs> or at least basic marital conflict resolution. Like you can level people up in about an hour to reduce... The, the, the bitterness of marital conflicts by about 50%, and we don't do it, and that's insane. Mm. So I would focus on those sort of general life skills. People should know how to meditate. People should know how to manage their emotions. People should know how to actively listen to others who politically disagree with them, take them on board, steel man their arguments, look it up, steel manning an argument. They should know how to do that kind of thing. But I think teaching them... Um, any specific kind of job-related skills is kind of a fool's errand at this point. Yeah. Hi, Sam. Thanks Hi. for your podcast. Um, my question's actually for Jeffrey, though. Um, so I think we're actually witnessing a gender phenomenon here where I'm the first female to ask a question, and the number yeah. of females <laughs> um, is maybe not representative of the number of females actually in the audience. So if we uh, say it's safe to, safe to assume that this isn't a coincidence. Why, what gender differences do you think cause this? And uh, are we stuck with these? There is a, you know, a general pattern in many species that males are louder, right? Sexual selection tends to favor males who do more public broadcasting of their, their signals, their virtues, their intelligence, whatever. And this tends to be the case kind of throughout history across cultures, um, that public display tends to be dominated by males, mostly because males are out there trying to get the status and, and the mates. But as you point out, that's bad because it means female voices aren't heard as much, at least in public discourse. So how do you overcome that? I think this is where I'm not going to say, oh, it's inevitable, we can't do anything, we just have to live with it. I think you need social norms 
that actually encourage uh, women to stand up and that encourage men to shut up while women are speaking so that women can say the things. I was really struck a few years ago, I gave a few talks in India. And in India, the female grad students were much more assertive about asking questions and engaging in conversation after talks than the male grad students were. And the sex ratio there was actually reversed. It was like 70% questions from women. I have no idea how Indian culture produced that result, but we should figure it out and, and like replicate it in American universities. I think this is a solvable cultural problem, and I think it's, it's one that, um, I mean, it, it handicaps science. Like, you go to a science conference, 80% of the questions are from guys, most of them are more long-winded than necessary, and, and... It, it, also depends on the field, though. I mean, there, yeah. there are areas in science that are overrepresented by women now, and it's... Yeah. it's um, yeah, no, I, I, this is not, this is a very common experience to wait this long to get the first woman at the mic. Thanks for your question. Good evening. Uh, I find it really interesting how the conversation kind of shifted from discussing basic instincts in mating and um, jealousy uh, and how we are dealing with that to uh, talking about artificial intelligence and how society is talking about that mm. um, and uh, anticipating the problems that are coming to face our societies and I, our society. And I think that um, it amazes me how, as a species, we're still trying to figure out something so basic and ancient, such as our instincts and how to live with them and all the other problems that are coming from them. And yet, we are also trying to figure out how we're dealing, how to deal with um, what the human brain have produced to um, the current societies and the civilization. Um, yeah. And this just led me to what keeps me uh, up at night, which is thinking about the uh, possibility of um, just kind of, is it possible that our emotions are stunted, they did not evolve as much as our brains did. And just thinking about the um, epidemic of mental illness and how we're dealing with things uh, in our society currently. So I think my question is, do you, uh, Dr. Meller, do you think that our brains have developed faster than our emotions? Yeah, so I, I teach a regular course called Human Emotions at my university where we go through all the emotions and we take them all very seriously as complex adaptive systems that solve particular problems in their own right. Fear, anger, love, lust, jealousy, um, shame, guilt. These are not simple things. They're very finely tuned mechanisms that have a lot of anatomy, a lot of psychology within, within them. So it's wrong to think of the emotions as somehow simple or, or basic. There's a lot of them, and they do a lot of work for us. Um, and they can be deployed in quite flexible ways in, in society, right? So you can have um, you know, anger that, that goes all the way from just uh, getting in, into a fight into sort of moralistic aggression that's outraged, that, 
you know, that person, that mathematician's proof of that particular concept has this logical error, and uh, I'm so angry about that. And that's really cool that we can repurpose emotions and connect them up to cognition in so many different ways. So I actually feel lucky that we have as large a toolbox of emotions as we do, that they're each so intricate and complicated, and that we can kind of connect them up to different contemporary issues in, in such flexible ways. Do you feel that, um, the, uh, that we as humans are developing emotionally at the same rate that we're developing intellectually? What, do, you, do you think that, is there any reason why we're facing a mental epidemic? Is it a problem? And then also, um, just going back to what do you think about the conversation that we're still talking about our basic instincts, something that we as a species have dealt with as long as we have existed, but it doesn't seem that we have actually figured it, figured the, our instincts out. Right. Well, I mean, the, the study of human emotions in a scientific way is only 150 years old, so it's not that surprising that we don't have a, a good set of rational models of of emotions, and we've only had evolutionary psychology, which is kind of the, the key that unlocks all of this theoretically for, thir for 30 years. Um, certainly, emotions don't evolve biologically very quickly, so our emotional repertoire is not going to be up to date with regard to most of the things we face, and I think the mental illness issues, widespread depression and anxiety among the young, is uh, kind of what you would expect from this mismatch between our basic emotional repertoires and, and a lot of weird aspects of modern life. Yeah, I think the, the spirit of your question is a, a very good and, and startling one. I mean, when you just picture where this is all headed, I think we will one day colonize Mars and there will be almost certainly a first fist fight on Mars. <laughs> Just picture that. I mean, two polyamorous dudes deciding to, they have to bash each other in the face on Mars. Uh, so it's, we have a lot of work to get our house in order. And I think, I think the products of our raw intelligence are outstripping our, our apish urges. And uh, at some point, we, we need a better handle on, on uh, our, our raw emotional life. Thank you. Hi, Sam. Hi. Um, I also want to say thank you for helping me feel less alienated and insecure about my critical views on religion, especially mm -hmm. considering I grew up in a very red county in um, Texas. Yeah. So, yeah. yes, thank you for that. Sure. Um, my question was actually more or less the same exact question that she just asked. So. I'm going to completely change it. Um, in my Plato philosophy course, we've been talking a lot about death and, um, and Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return and mm -hmm. the importance of contemplating things like death um, and how it may help us prepare, well, how life should maybe be about preparing for death and how we should contemplate it. So what, what do you think about death? And um, I, yeah, I guess just... Generally, what do you think about yeah. death, and what, what do you think happens at, in that moment? Well, I, I don't know what happens, <laughs> but I, I think thinking about death is, is very useful. I think, I mean, it's not, it, it could be morbid, you could be just afraid of, of 
dying and and that could be limiting. I mean, I think there's a way to think about death that's not healthy, but I think there's a, there can be a very constructive and very useful way to keep death in mind without pretending you know anything about what happens after death. I mean, there's, there's certainly no good reason to think that you get everything you want after you die. So the only chance to do something beautiful and meaningful that you can be sure of is, is here. And reflecting on death gives you a reason to make the most of this opportunity. And it, it, it can get your priorities straight in a way that few other things can. And you can, you can be blindsided by it. You can suddenly lose someone close to you and realize whatever opportunities you had to tell them you love them are now gone. You know, so you, you just look back on, on whether or not you made the most of, of those occasions or not. But you don't have to wait for that to happen to you. You can realize that's going to happen. I mean, if, you, if you just live long enough, everyone you care about is going to die. Either the phone is going to start ringing with bad news, or someone else's phone is going to be ringing about you in the end. And so it's rather than wait to be blindsided by all of this, you can know that that's coming and use that to frame even ordinary interactions with people with this uh, a profound sense of the preciousness of all of this. I mean, this is, this is an intuition that religious people seem to have that, that I've never understood. I, I can't tell you how many times this, is, this has come at me, this worry that if there's no life after death, if, if heaven doesn't await us after death, none of this means anything. This is all, this is, there's no point to anything, right? This becomes somehow diminished by a lack of eternity. But in the absence of eternity, this is it, right? This is not a rehearsal for anything. This is the show. And I think the best way to internalize that is to, to remember that you don't know how long you have or, and you don't know how long anyone close to you has. And that need not be depressing. That can actually, that can actually make you able to cut through superficiality and pointless pettiness. You know, I mean, you can, you can be, it can make you a better person very, very quickly to remember that. There are types of anger and, and interpersonal glitchiness that just become impossible when you think about death. And so, so reflecting on it is very useful. Thank you. Now that I've just talked about the preciousness of life, apologies for those of you in line, but I think we're, we're down to the last four questions. So two, two aside, yeah. Actually, no, now I'm, now I'm seeing that we'll try to be not long-winded, just know what nobody else get in line. We're gonna get, we'll get through the, both of these lines. Okay. Uh, hi, Sam, yeah. uh, I'm a programmer, so I got another AI question yep. for you. Um, Given that evolution happens to populations and not individuals, and intelligence arose from a population evolving, do you think that maybe we will find AI by having a society of virtual minds interacting? And if that's the case, when they do become conscious, then we don't really have as much of a problem because they'd all have to decide to kill us and not just the paperclip maximizer, like deciding to go rogue. There'd be a group of AI that all kind of woke up at the same time. Right. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really see... I mean, I think it's, it's quite plausible that if this doesn't happen incredibly quickly with a, like a true winner-take-all scenario, there will be 
multiple AIs, and it'll be, it'll be you know, better aligned AIs that we'll be using to, to safeguard us against badly aligned AIs. Yes, do you think that when we, if we do come up with it, that we'll just have a single mind in a box that just kind of wakes up, or is it, it's not going to be like something that happens that kind of... Well, I think it's scarier to think of it being out in the wild, so to speak. I mean, it, it being already on the Internet or already out of a, a, a discernible box. I think that's more worrisome because then it's in contact with everything we care about or potentially in contact with everything we care about. So I, I think the, the only responsible way to make the final step towards something that is, that is truly super intelligent and, in the extreme case, recursively self-improving, something that can actually initiate something like an intelligence explosion, the only responsible way to do that is, is in isolation. You're just air-gapped from the Internet, I and mean, we just can't have that touching anything else we care about. Thank you. Yeah. Um, hello. Um, hey. So how would you advise one to be effective in their communication with an audience whose views are completely opposite of your own? Hmm. Well, I can't say I'm especially good at this. <laughs> Or at least I, I don't have a lot of evidence that I, that I am. I'm not often, you know, I, I haven't been invited to go speak at CPAC or... But there, there are obviously points of contact that you can make with any group. I mean, they, we're not radically divergent in what we care about. I mean, there, there are few people who want the world to end or want to see disease spread or don't care about the future that their children will inherit, or I mean, it's, you, you can creep up on shared values even if you're with people who have you know, radically divergent beliefs from your own. But it really it just depends on what the purpose is. You know, if I'm in front of a religious congregation and I'm broadcasting my blasphemy, the only way I, I have found to sort of frame that so so as to be unobjectionable is to talk about what's, what my real motive is. I mean, my motive is not to just shock people or offend people. My motive is, I, I'm worried about the status quo. I'm worried about the untenability of having a world that is shattered into separate and competing religious camps, say, for, the, for that conversation. And that's, that worry can be understood by people, even, even the people who are quite sure they have the right religion. They can see the, the, the untenability of having a, a zero-sum contest with the rest of humanity, uh, or at least potentially can. So I, I just think it's, you know, being honest about your motives can, can go a long way, you know, if your motives are admirable, you know. I think there's two other things you can do, one of which is you can kind of cultivate a complex patchwork ideology where instead of being locked into one particular identity, like I am a Democrat liberal, you can cultivate this is what I think about this issue and this other thing about that issue. And then you can do this little Uber exercise, which I do every time I'm in an Uber. I talk to the driver and I say things only that I genuinely believe are true, but I make him or her think I'm absolutely on the same page ideologically about everything. Because there are parts where I can agree with them always. And if you just kind of go with those, then you'll find an amazing amount of common ground. I'd and like I, to see your Uber rating. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's so high. Um. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, hi. 
So uh, my first question is, how, what's the extent or like how much a person can change, especially given that we said that um, many personality traits are inherited, but also we know that there is a neuroplasticity. Mm. And uh, specific, specifically also about the consciousness, which is something that I kind of share with you, that's, that, that's something that feels and something that watch or like feels the feeling and think the thought. Do you believe that that something have a say or it's just watching? Like, can it change? And the second question is uh, about marijuana legalization. I see that it's encouraged a lot by liberals and leftists mm. who are actually like scientists, usually like they are pro-science, but also at the same time, there are some clinical data that correlates weed and marijuana usage with psychosis, especially in teenagers. Right. So, well, well, to take the second question first, I, I think criminalization of drugs is just a bad idea, to, regardless of how harmful certain drugs are. I just, I mean, you, you don't... It, the, the, the worst effects of drugs are the effects of, of their criminalization. I mean, organized crime and violence and the, the profit motive of a black market and, and the fact that... Um, you know, there's you know, not safe dosing of these drugs. So the problem of, of drug dependency and, and the people taking bad drugs versus more benign drugs, that's all a matter of education and social support that people need and, and people finding just meaning, meaningful lives. But you know, you, we have abundant problems with alcohol, and alcohol is legal. And we, you know, we didn't need the, the prohibition to give us organized crime and all the other problems we had by virtue of making alcohol illegal. So, but yeah, so your first question, insofar as I, I heard every word of it, I think people tend not to change very quickly and radically, but people can. I mean, the, it's like, yes, we have this tendency to be who we were yesterday, but the power of new ideas and new relationships and new disciplines is, is enormous. So you see people occasionally who have changed their lives and changed almost everything about their lives. I mean, they're just kind of unrecognizable to their, to their old friends. There's no recipe necessarily for doing that, I mean, depending on what the change is, but you become, on some level, what you pay attention to in a sustained way. And deciding what, what change you want in your life is probably the first step for most of these changes. And then you look around you and you see the people who are, who are successfully doing this thing that you wish you could do, or have become this way that you wish you could more closely emulate. And there's a way to do that. Everyone's advertising their method for being who they are. You know, if you want to know how to get in shape like a certain person, that person will... But someone already in shape, right? So you know, you know how you got that way. <laughs> Every, so, so there's no shortage of information about how to do any of these things that, that people care about. And you know, just as Jeffrey said, you know, married couples can close the door to fully half of the horrors of a bad marriage in like a single hour if you actually have an intelligent conversation with someone who can facilitate better communication between spouses. You can get much better at communicating with your spouse. And that can happen very, very quickly, and people neglect to do it, and the results are everywhere to be seen. So it's, I, I think we, you shouldn't underestimate the possibility of, of changing quite markedly and decisively and more or less permanently. I mean, that's, that's, that is on the menu in, in many respects. 
Thank you. Uh, well, uh, firstly, I just wanted to add another name to the list of, uh, I guess, ex-Muslims. Uh, uh, There's uh -huh. a gentleman that's from here, Faisal uh, Sayyid nice. Almantar. Friends with him on Facebook. He's got plenty of Facebook uh, profile pictures with you in there, so just wanted to shout out him. Uh, and my main question was just going to be, do you see overlap between groups like, you know, regressive left and uh, sort of the mob mentality, online mentality, and also maybe overlaps between uh, you saying that there's a lot of male dominated public discourse in a lot of these things. Do you see overlap between all that whenever we have extreme pendulum swing conversations about uh, guns and free speech and abortion? It's kind of everyone runs to the corner when in reality, there's a lot of rational people in the middle that mm. don't really seem to get any sort of leverage or any sort of traction. Again, a little bit of an audio problem there, but I think I got it. I think the Jeffrey made a point which was interesting relative to the Uber experiment. The idea that if you know a person's point of view about one thing, you can predict their view on 20 other seemingly unrelated things. That's, that's a strange fact of our intellectual and political lives. And I, I think it's the people in the middle have, have much more variation in what they believe and what, they're, what kinds of arguments they're open to and where they're, where they're stuck or, or movable. And I think that's, that's a place to be. I mean, the fact that you, can, you, you choose everything from one side of the menu, whether it's guns or climate change or GMOs or you know, vaccines, I mean, like, go, go through the list of things that are difficult to talk about in public. I think that's certainly very fishy, and you know, I, I'm, I don't tend to be that way, and we should become much more interested and tolerant of disagreement on all of those topics, as long as it's intelligent disagreement. Conversation has to be able to run its course, and so when, when you have groups that are trying to stifle conversation, as is happening, it seems, more on the left now than, than anywhere, that's clearly the wrong remedy. Right. I mean, it can't be a matter of shutting, of, of making certain topics taboo and deplatforming everyone, no matter how serious they, their reputation, who wants to talk about those things. So, yeah. I have more questions, but thank you very much. Yeah. Thank, you. thank you. Appreciate it. Hi, I'm a roboticist. My husband works in machine learning and AI, so I have very strong views on robotics nice. in the future. Nice. <laughs> um, so my question already got answered, so I have a follow-up, which is a topic nobody's um, asked you about. You mentioned gene editing earlier, and I wanted to know if you're familiar with CRISPR, which is the technology. And I kind of wanted to know if you've given any thoughts on the future of um, gene editing and how it may affect us with natural selection, because evolution um, takes place over hundreds and thousands of years, not one, um, not like one generation. So do you think that that might be more of an existential threat as opposed to robots coming and taking all of our jobs? And pretty much if you have any, like, just a condensed version of your ideas on that. I guess two of my main worries about CRISPR or genetic engineering in general are, number one, the way that they could facilitate the development of engineered pandemics or bioweapons where you get high lethality and high virulence and easy transmission, and you could get um, a terrorist group or a rogue state creating um, pandemics that are really very hard to defend against, and they don't need nearly as much equipment to do so as, you know, uh, Iran would need to build a nuclear bomb. So it'll be a sort of free-for-all of 
potentially very dangerous biotechnology within 10 or 20 years, and I'm very worried about that. That is getting some attention, not enough from international regulators, but it's sort of on the map. The second issue I do worry about with, with CRISPR and gene editing is um, in China, for example, the uptake of that will be very fast, and they are ready for it, and there's a long tradition in Chinese medicine of Yusheng, good birth, trying to get the best baby you can, and they don't have any of the same ethical concerns about this stuff that Americans tend to have. So be prepared for rapid uptake of these technologies in China. Problem is, they also have a fairly weird idea about what specific problems they want to avoid. There's a huge stigma against mental illness in China. If they can possibly avoid a kid having bipolar or depression or schizotypy or anything like that, and if they can select that out using CRISPR, they will do so. Problem is, there's quite a big overlap between, say, bipolar and creativity. Right? Mm. So they could be unwittingly selecting out a lot of the creativity genes as they go after these mental illness genes. So I think they'll need to get a much more sophisticated understanding about how each of these genetic loci you know, affects multiple traits and has both costs and, and benefits. Uh, if they don't do that, they could end up with a society that really is pretty genetically homogenized and that loses some of the, uh, the spark. Mm. I would just say, if you want a good primer on, on CRISPR technology, I had Jennifer Doudna on the podcast, and she spoke about it for an hour. It's like six months ago or four months ago. But yeah. yeah, thanks very Thank much you. to both of you. Um, I wanted to ask, you know, so it's interesting. I think the, you know, the session started out with a you know, almost a de-emphasis of the, the, uh, our uniqueness as a species kind of evolutionarily um, and ended with the, you know, the need to face this possibility that, uh, you know, we may be nearing this inflection point where evolution may change dram you know, dramatically and not just kind of incrementally as it has, mm. um, you know, and that we may be the agents of this change and uh, in, in ending in you know, cataclysmic failure. Um, we know from neuroscience that our, you know, our, our brains, uh, individual to individual, are very different functional, functionally and structurally, and you know, you've uh, studied this looking at how even how we believe things is, you know, instantiated differently between mathematical beliefs and beliefs about religion and morality. And those differences are so easily amplified now with social media and arms races and, and this sort of thing. So my question is, you know, do we have enough uh, common ground going forward? And, uh, you know, enough shared beliefs in, in terms of truth, morality, and, and mutual benefit um, that we're likely to succeed here? You've know, been doing this for some number of years. Uh, what have you seen in terms of the arc uh, of uh, you know, how we're doing as a society in terms of facing these problems? Well, I think we're winning and losing simultaneously. I, mean, I, th I think we're seeing an amplification of polarization, but we're also seeing evidence that good ideas win as well. So it's like I, I, mean, I see all the while seeing the rise of, I mean, to take this case of, of Islam, the rise of ISIS and global jihad, we're also seeing a rise globally in secularism and in the retiring of many of these ancient religious ideas. And so it's, I don't know what's happening faster, but I know that reason and a, a respect for evidence and argument is the only 
algorithm that gets us to converge. I mean, it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that, that, where you can get people who are arbitrarily disparate to converge given the same set of experiences and facts and pressures and incentives. And so we, do, we have to keep figuring out how to rig our public sphere with the right framework so that people are, are willing to reason together. And I mean, so that, you know, free speech is one master variable. You know, you should never be killed for things you think out loud. And we should be highly tolerant of disagreement. And the fact that we even have, you know, Ivy League professors who can't figure that out now is, is a very worrying sign. I mean, we, we, we need the ivory tower to be of one mind on this topic and perhaps many others. But free speech has to win because it's, it's the only error-correcting mechanism we have. I mean, again, we, all we have is conversation to affect these changes in ourselves. And that's, that's the way we rewrite the software that is culture. And that's the way we do science. And that's the way we overcome bias. That's the way we counter dogma that isn't actually guiding us in reality because it's wrong. There are very few things that we should hold sacred and hold as unchanging parameters, but I think respect for free speech is one of them. Big question. I hope that was a gesture at answering it. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my question's about game theory, and um, I'm just curious. So this idea that basically we are all rational decision makers that choose between either competition or cooperation mm. uh, to achieve our, our goals, whether that's carrying on our genes, uh, spreading civilizations, so you know, kind of at a micro and a macro level, this, this idea of game theory, how useful is it from the perspective of an evolutionary psychologist as a tool uh, in explaining not only behavior at the individual level, but of large nations, of companies, and what can we ultimately learn from it to perhaps improve some of our systems of governance, uh, you know, the way we, the way we uh, function as a society, kind of at a small scale and a larger scale. What can we learn from game theory? I've found game theory incredibly useful in, in my thinking, my whole worldview, the way I apply evolutionary principles to human behavior. I actually worked in a game theory center and an economics department at University College London for four years. And um, you don't need to get very deep into the technical you know, details of it. You can learn sort of the top dozen basic insights from game theory in a couple afternoons or from a few a few videos. Um, signaling theory is probably the part of game theory I use most often. You know, the idea there is how do you credibly demonstrate what kind of organism you are through the signals you give out and what makes those signals honest and hard to fake rather than easily faked like cheap talk. Once you learn just signaling theory, everything suddenly makes a lot more sense in the world. Um, all the way from courtship to consumer behavior to international politicking and saber-rattling to uh, branding and so forth. And these are exactly the kinds of things that K-12 through education should cover. It is absurd that 10th graders don't know what the prisoner's dilemma is. Mm. Um, and if they did, would it help? I probably couldn't hurt. I don't know. But... Um, Thinking strategically about human life is really valuable because you can help identify here are the situations where there's conflict between us because we misunderstand 
the situation or we misunderstand each other versus we have different preferences versus the game context creates a conflict even where it's avoidable. It's really valuable to know the difference between all those things. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. The truth is you don't have to learn that much for the concepts to be useful. I mean, just to know the difference between zero-sum games and positive-sum games or the idea of a coordination problem, the fact that you and I are both behaving rationally in the game we're playing, but if we could both change how we're playing simultaneously, we could play a much better game. But absent our being able to coordinate that change together, it's rational for each of us to be the selfish bastards we are in, in the current game. And so we, on some level, a lot of our problems are explained by mostly good people faced with a massive coordination problem. We're trying to figure out how to play better games together, and yet, given the games we're playing, it's rational for all of us to persist in a mediocre game. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so for Jeffrey, in polyamory, how do participants manage their responsibilities? Because you mentioned earlier uh, pregnancy not being a pause, a way, a, a reason to pause. And then for Sam, um, how, should, uh, how should humans define or measure the uh, happiness of happy cows you mentioned earlier, uh, especially because they have their own desire to continue living? So I don't know how people should manage pregnancy with polyamory, but I'll just point out the empirical data that in fact, people who are in polyamorous open relationships do empirically tend to use STI testing and contraception much more reliably than people who are in uh, monogamous relationships and cheating. However, um, you know, you got to negotiate all this. It's all up for negotiation. That doesn't mean it's relationship anarchy, but um, if you're in an open relationship, you still have to plan, when are we going to have kids? What are we going to do about them? Who's going to give up what? Where are we going to live? How are our relationships going to change once we have the new parental responsibilities? Polly does not magically give you an extra 12 hours a day. You still have budgets of time, energy, money, attention, love, affection that you have to allocate somehow. And parenting is going to soak up some of that. So you have to be prepared for that. In some cases, having extra people involved in your life could actually bring extra help, right? You could have allo parenting, others sort of helping out the nest. But in other cases, it means you're, oh, here we are again, locked into a suburban monogamish couple doing biparental care. So uh, we as a society don't yet have enough flexibility to fully embrace the, the new possibilities of how do you combine new kinds of sexual relationships with raising a family. As far as happy cows, I think... Given happy enough cows, I mean, given, given farming practices that really do seem something close to ideal, there would be very little doubt that these are lucky animals compared to any other animals, certainly compared to any animal on a factory farm now, and even compared to wild animals. So I, mean, I think most of us are not losing sleep over the plight of wild animals just living their wild lives. Like that, that's a status quo to which we are actually biased. I mean, we'd, like if, if someone said, listen, nature is just horrible, you know, all these animals are 
hunting and being hunted and risking starvation, and it's just, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw, so let's just kill them all, right? We would just euthanize all of nature. That's the compassionate thing to do. You know, that would seem pretty horrible to us. That's, on some level, what we're picturing if we decide we're not going to raise any livestock anymore. I mean, we have billions of animals that outnumber the wild animals. And if we decide, well, it's just not ethical to keep them around, I think that it'll only seem not ethical given our current practices of factory farming. But you could imagine grass-fed herds of cows that this probably wouldn't feed all of humanity. There have to be other solutions. But such cows that could exist happily I think will seem happier than certainly any wild animal. And then, then the fact that they get killed in the end, again, as compassionately as that can be done, that won't seem as bad or even bad at all if you, if you agree they're net positive lives. Again, I don't, I don't know that, this, that we can achieve that, but it, seems, it certainly seems possible. So, I'm sorry I have to bring this to a close, but it's been an honor to come here to speak with you all, and I want to thank Jeffrey for taking the time. Please. and um, take only half of his advice. (laughs) Thank you. Good night. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you'll also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.